You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Mark Schindler is in the building. It's the first time I have actually sat down to podcast in four days for the first time in God knows how long because I you know, had a really scratchy, screwed up throat on Sunday. It got a little bit worse on Monday and Tuesday. And, you know, like I said, I recorded two podcasts with spins on Sunday in order to kind of stem the tide a little bit for the early part of the week when I thought I wasn't going to be able to speak. But the good news is that I've got Mark Schindler here. Mark watches more basketball than any human I know, I feel like. So we're going to get a chance to dive into everything that's happened across the league. We have to start with Kyrie and Josh Primo because everything off the court in the NBA sucks right now. But I do at least want to acknowledge that I'm excited to talk about all of the fun stuff we've seen on the court in the NBA so far. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of good stuff to dive into, but I agree, man. Um, This has been a – to say it's been a frustrating week is an undersell. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's been a bummer of a week. It's been uh, hard to watch across the NBA as it continues to unfortunately disappoint uh, those of us that have grown to expect more from the league. And I guess where we have to start is with Kyrie. Do you, do you want to start with Kyrie or Josh Primo first? Let's, let's go there. Uh, yeah, I think we, we can start with Kyrie. Um, today was like, I mean, cause I texted you cause I knew you were asleep. I was like, Oh dude, just wait till you wake up. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's so many angles to look at this from, um, and just to be concise with it, I think. I mean, well, clearly, let, let, let me let me um, let me let me lay out what happened yeah, today sure. for people. Uh, okay, so Kyrie does his first availability since the announcement that the Brooklyn Nets and Kyrie Irving were each donating five hundred thousand uh, dollars to, I believe, the Anti Defamation League, um, and kind of work with them in order to help. Uh, like the Jewish community in some regard. Uh, it seems a little bit fuzzy on what that money is going to go toward exactly, but I'm sure that it'll be put to use in some way. Um, Kyrie Irving was asked directly, just straight up, um, Kyrie, for the record, do you have any anti-Semitic beliefs? Kyrie Irving, 
Again, I'm going to repeat, I don't know how the label becomes justified because you guys ask me the same questions over and over again. But this is not going to turn into a spin around cycle. Questions upon questions. I told you guys how I felt. I respect all walks of life and embrace all walks of life. That's where I sit. Um, Basically, someone then asked for a simple yes or no. And he said, I cannot be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from. Uh, and then he just repeated it after someone asked, what does that mean? Uh, so uh, someone like asked, are you surprised that this hurt people? Uh, Kyrie Irving said, yeah, I think I can ask a better question. Where were you when I was a kid finding out that 300 million of my ancestors were buried in America? Um, he then later said, I'm not here to compare anyone's atrocities. Um, someone asked him about uh, the specific things in the documentary that you believe are true or don't represent your views. Uh, I think some of the criticism of the Jewish of the Jewish faith and the community, for sure, some points made in there that were unfortunate. Uh, this comes from James Herbert, my former colleague at CBS Sports. Shout out, James. James. Um, yeah, so. All of that is bad. Just just say that you're sorry and say that uh, you're not anti-Semitic. It's literally the bare minimum. It's the bare minimum. It's all you had to do in that press conference. And he refuses to do it. So I uh, don't I, I know where to go, but I'll give you the floor. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think. Well, I mean, we're in lockstep with this. I think it's just uh, it's just frustrating because on one hand, like you mentioned, uh, they had it was Kyrie and the Nets had the joint statement. They were pledging five hundred thousand um, dollars earlier today. And my immediate thought was, well, let's see how this plays out in the next couple hours and whether or not this is going to be rendered moot. And there it is. Like, I think on the one hand, like, no, I can't I can't relate to what Kyrie is saying about his ancestors, but then to double down and be hypocritical and talking about, I'm not going to um, compare atrocities. Well, you just did, man. And it's, it's less about that. It's more just say, sorry, like clearly the worst thing that he could have done was coming out and continuing to do his saying fence sitting is the wrong way to put it. Like, it's just, he's very cleanly just refusing to say one way or another. Well, obviously pointing into a direction saying that he's not sorry. Um, it's just frustrating, man, like that this has had to be circulating the entire week. Um, and it's just been disappointing, like extremely disappointing. So uh, I guess that what what frustrates me about this one particularly is him saying I can't be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from. It could be construed. I don't want to say that, you know, I know where Kyrie's head is at on this, but it's very easy to construe that statement as a very uh, big, you know, big brained way of, you know, believing some of the things that are in the film, because the whole thing within the film is this idea of, uh it's you know that black people are the true like hebrews w- within all of this and i 
think that by using those words particularly, it's hard to it's hard for him to be able to just fully if, if he chose those words to say, and that is what now makes this complicated because it's very easy to construe that that is what he believes based off of that. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he could just say he's not anti-Semitic. Maybe he could just say he doesn't believe what's in the film. That would be nice. Just do that, Kyrie, please. That would uh, that would be much easier for everyone. Um, but yeah, no, they're, they're, the, the, this film is a dumpster fire. Like it is just so it's based on these ideas that have been debunked. It, it uses quotes from Adolf Hitler. It uses like all of these ridiculous made up historical things that are stated about Jewish people uh, that again, I don't really care to repeat on the show to give them any sort of life. It's just really kind of unacceptable. The problem is that like, I don't want to say that it's a problem. I just want to acknowledge that like, I understand Kyrie's search for his, you know, the search for understanding where his people came from and who he is. And uh, I think that we need to acknowledge that, unfortunately, black people have been lied to throughout this country's history and throughout history in general. And I understand that there is a real desire for him to search for history that comes at things from a different angle. The problem is he picked the wrong thing here. And it's filled with disgusting things that have just been debunked at this point. And there's just no, uh, there's no way to look at this. And it's hard for me to even look at it. Like the person who's done, I think really good work on this is Nick Wright, actually um, over at Fox sports. He released like a nine minute video uh, from his podcast that I thought was a really, really good explanation of the entire situation. And, he thinks of it as like Kyrie coming at it with a good heart. And I I can't really even do that anymore, to be honest. Like, I think that's even letting Kyrie off the hook. I would still absolutely implore everyone to go watch Nick's video because it really lays out in detail a lot of the issues and why some of these issues are so pressing and why some of the, why, you know, actors in this space act the way they do and why, um, you know, black people unfortunately are just, searching constantly for history that isn't written by just a bunch of white people that don't acknowledge them in proper ways. And uh, I can't really look at it though, that Kyrie's coming at it from a good heart anymore. Cause he just won't go up and like apologize and he won't go up and say like, Oh yeah, I screwed up and I don't believe this and I'm not anti-Semitic. Like this isn't, this isn't that hard. I don't think. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I don't really have anything else to add to that. Um, I just, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. And I'm annoyed that we have to keep talking about this because basketball has been so good at this point. Um, but we do because Kyrie keeps self immolating in front of cameras. Um, so let's move on to Josh Primo now. Uh, Josh Primo, it would seem, is about to get sued by uh, Dr. Hillary Cothin. 
Um, I didn't watch the video. I did, I did. Uh, watch the quotes. Does she pronounce her name Cawthon? Uh, I actually, so I, that part, I did not pay. I did not. Had, okay. I, I'm not sure. So uh, she was the, well, Mark, you watched the video. So explain this for me, I guess. Yeah. So basically uh, she was the Spurs team psychologist. She would travel with the team. Um, yeah. Essentially uh, to, to summate it, like she first, uh, during her first interaction she had with Josh, um, he exposed himself to her and this happened nine times. This wasn't just a one-time thing she made. Uh, it was directly said that it was not RC Buford. It was Brian Wright who she made this aware to had a meeting that took a long time to get set up with Brian Wright. Cause they kept putting it off. Um, and this was made clear to the Spurs front office that this was a problem in 2021, late 2021. Okay. December, um, I believe. Yeah. December of 2021. And they told her to keep working with him. Um, and yeah, um, I think what I've. She, she also, she asked, like, I, I, she said something along the lines to them of, I don't feel comfortable um, yes. working with him as well. Yeah. And uh, they, they, they told her that, um, that Pop knew. And that's a whole other thing because people are trying to conflate. Well, did Pop know this? I have no. I can't speculate on that. I have no interest in speculating on that. Yeah. Um, but the, the person she seems to directly implicate here is Brian Wright, the general manager of the San Antonio Spurs. Yeah. And as, so she, her lawyer said in his statement that um, Brian Wright told her that Pop knew, but basically she does not believe that that was actually the case. Um, she questions whether that was true. Um Essentially, as time wore on, we hit summer league um, and they told her not to show up for summer league, even though that would be something that she would normally go to. Um, and by the time the new season rolled around, they told her they weren't going to renew her contract. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have plenty to say on this unless you'd like to to, to dive in with, with some quotes or just added stuff. Um. I will, before we do this, I will just note that Josh Primo has come out with his own attorney saying that all of this is inaccurate and all of that. Um, this is, these are all allegations at this point. I don't want to get the podcast sued. Um, but Mark, please go forth with your thoughts. Yeah. Um, I, I think the hardest part of getting deeper into covering the league and just sports in general is getting privy to how commonplace some of this stuff is. Um, This was not going to come out. Like this was not going to come out if somebody from the Spurs front office did not leak this. That was also one of the, I think that was the biggest thing made clear in their presser. They were trying to keep this quiet. Like the, the, the lawyers um, were planning on just having this being as quiet of a suing as you can have, but this wasn't going to be public details. Um, this only came out because of the alleged incident that happened in Minnesota that led to Josh being waived um, and then details being leaked from inside the front office. Um, I think first and foremost, like it's just disgusting stuff. Um, yeah. Like that's stuff that can't happen. Uh, and for uh, obviously, regardless of how many times disgusting, but like for this to happen nine times, and yes. for the Spurs to just keep sweeping under the rug is what makes it extremely disappointing um, and even more disgusting. Like, It's hard for 
women who are fans of the NBA to look at what has happened throughout the league this week, along with uh, the Ime Yudoka imminent hiring. Has that become official yet in Brooklyn? I think it's all but official. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's hard, I think, for women who are fans of the NBA to look at what has happened around the league and think that the NBA cares about them and that the NBA gives a shit about what, uh, who they are, basically. Uh, you know, Ime Yudoka was accused of making unwanted advances. We can, uh, you know, we can say through at least reporting from Shamsharania, that is, um, we can say that that relationship started out as consensual, but based off of the reporting, you know, from Shams, it turned in a different way. And once it turns in a different way, that becomes a different conversation. Um, Josh Primo is accused of exposing his genitals to a doctor nine times. And you pick up his option, uh, you know, 18 days before you cut him because you think you can keep this under wraps. What, what are you see? Like, this is why I said on the last podcast that I want to know more about the timeline here. Whenever, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, did the Spurs, you know, do a good thing morally here? Um, like, sure, from the surface, when you just randomly cut a guy, like, it looks great. But when you start to dig into the details, like, how, how did you let this go on so long uh, would be my question. How, how, how are you allowing this? How, how does this result in this woman losing her job potentially? Um, all of this, I think still, there, there's still more information to play out, right? Like we are getting stories here, you know, being released in press conferences, but I, I tend to believe I, I have no reason not to believe this woman at the end of the day, period, point blank. And frankly, the Spurs actions, uh, having cut a guy that was a former lottery pick, Say that shit doesn't happen. Believe this woman. Yeah. This is unprecedented for a team to cut a lottery pick a year and a half after selecting him. They are excited about him. They are pumped that he is developing within their uh, organization and they cut him. Their actions say that we should believe this from this woman. It's, it's just disgusting. Like I, I, yeah, no, yeah. Um, I mean, just to, to kind of close out on, I think the the biggest thing is just understanding uh, a, like, like I mentioned earlier, like this is way more prevalent than I think people understand. Um, and even if things to this high a degree are not what's taking place in every organization um, it's the power structure that I think people, and it's in, in the same vein as what happened in Boston, the power structure is the problem. Like chief, felt that she could not go to the front office because she was worried about losing her job. And she ended up being right in that. And I think that's just what continues to be the most disturbing. Um, You know, when you have something that is this high level, uh, this level of competition, this much money involved, um, when you have, uh, when you have power structure set up like this, that make it, and, that make it that much more difficult to actually be accountable, to to hold people accountable, to bring forth bad things that are happening. Like 
that's what allows for these terrible things to happen. And until we actually um, find some way to solve it, and that, that does not seem imminent in any point. Um, but I do think continuing to to call out and, and bring this stuff to light is important. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but regardless, I mean, yeah, it's it's been kind of devastating, um, which sounds uh, – you know, odd coming from somebody who's not part of the situation, but I just think in general, general, like it makes me like, I don't know, like every time I've turned on a Spurs game in the last 10 months, I've been excited about it. Like I love watching young players develop and play basketball. Yeah. And now like, it's the kind of thing where I'm like knowing this shit was going on behind the scenes. Like it just, it's gross, man. Yeah, no, it's, it's garbage. It's unacceptable. And there's just not, nothing else to, say and we'll see we'll see where it goes from here um it does seem like uh this situation has not reached its conclusion um let's take a quick commercial break and we will be back Mark, let's follow up that uh, that very frustrating, annoying off-court discussion and move forth into talking about exciting things. The basketball that has occurred on the court this year has been fucking incredible. It has been amazing. It has been the most competitive I have seen the league at the start of the season in a long, long time. And I absolutely love watching games on a nightly basis, waking up and just popping on synergy and finding a random game that I didn't get a chance to watch last night because the depth of the talent across the league right now is so high. I think that this is probably the most depth of talent league wide we have seen in years upon years. It has been such high level basketball this season. It has been incredible to watch. Um, We'll talk about like a, at least one team that you and I wanted to talk about in general that mm-hmm. has not necessarily played high level basketball, but like even the Orlando magic who have one win, I believe still um, they do weird fun things like play, you know, Paulo at the two and Franz Wagner and bull bull at the two and the three and like get weird and wild with rosters and, lineup constructions and things like that because they don't have any guards to come off the bench uh the wizards like a team that i called coming into the season we're gonna talk about them later on but like a team that i thought was the most dull situation in the league i've really enjoyed watching the wizards play basketball they have like a a weird identity that is enjoyable to like uh, to parse through i really really have loved the level like the level of bench players now in the nba that can't get starting jobs it's just so high. Like the talent across the league is so good. I enjoy watching basketball so much on a nightly basis within the NBA. Mark, uh, before we dive into some of these teams, have you enjoyed the NBA this season as much as I oh, have? Man. Just I've loved on court product. I've absolutely loved it. Um, I think it's actually really funny. I had a I had a tweet about this in the offseason. I think it was after the Will Barton uh, Monty Morris trade, and I was like. The Wizards have an absolute stranglehold on fifth starters. And, like, I mean, I think they have, like, six or seven guys who I think could be fifth starters yeah. on, on any team. Um, but they're fun, man. Like, I, I'm, I'm excited to talk about them. But just in general, like, you hit on talking about uh, how funky teams are getting. I had a conversation about this with some people earlier today. 
Um, maybe this is just me being on the younger end. So I've only really covered the NBA in depth for about three years now, but yeah. it really feels like, at least to me, looking up and down the league, that this is like the most uh, roster differential is the wrong way to put it, but like different ways of attacking and playing basketball that you see across the league, I feel like, especially in roster construction. I feel like you can literally pinpoint like, I mean, okay, let's just A, you can look at what the Pistons are doing. Very different from from what Orlando's doing, in my opinion. Um, mm. You can you can look at like okay, so like the Bucks, they're playing two bigs and they're playing much more drop now, or like which I'm excited to talk about that because there's a lot there. But like you can just like look up and down like they're even Miami. Miami plays extremely small. Indiana, part of it has been because they're in a wonky place right now, but they're playing four guard lineups all the time. Yeah. Like there's just <laughs> so much difference in the way that teams are playing. Um, and I love in like an ex- it, it's like an experimental phase of the NBA right now. Weirdly, yes. like we've hit this strange experimental ideal that uh, we're no longer like homogenous around mm-hmm. the league. Like it felt like the league got. I don't want to say like totally homogenous in terms of what they were doing, but like everyone was trying to cultivate this one dominant ball handler floor four floor spacers and you know maybe one rim running big you play drop maybe you go all switch defense but like there was very little differentiation now mm-hmm. you can look out across the league and like teams are really experimenting to try and find ways to win a title and trying to find ways to like accumulate talent in a real way and to me the real just like driving principle of it all is size and skill intersection, right? I think that the teams that are doing this in a really interesting way, the Raptors are another one, right? We didn't even mention them. Like their grand experiment is so, so interesting to me. Um, The Orlando magic obviously fit this and are probably taking it to a degree that is too much because they can't defend anyone on a night. Did you see their closing lineup against the Mavs? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was like Bull, Paulo, Franz, Chuma, um, and and Wendell. And they actually, they won their, they played, I think, two, 150, I wrote about this because they played 151 seconds. They won by one point, so cherry pick stat, but uh, that was, that was a wild game to watch. Like, just two, the the most different roster builds you could possibly have. Like, it was, it was very fun stuff. So I had this idea basically to talk about the lineups across the league right now that have been most successful. Um, Some of them are five-man lineups. Some of them are three-man lineups. So we can talk about my dear sweet Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, But essentially we talk about the lineups that have been most successful so far. And I'm doing like a Ricky Bobby thing where I don't know what to do with my hands. It looks like uh, in the interview we're watching on YouTube, um, but we're doing this thing where we're going to talk about the best lineups in the league, and we're going to talk about what it says about those teams, and just kind of using it as a jump-off point to dive into some exciting things. And I sent Mark like a big old notes sheet uh, last night while I was watching cricket. So um, we're gonna we're gonna dive in here and start with the Cavs because the Cavs to me are the most exciting team to watch on yes. a nightly basis right now. Um, the hometown Mark Schindler's hometown Cleveland Cavaliers, baby. Uh, I love watching this team. I I love everything about them. Um, they are this weird mix of different lineup constructions and, um, playing two bigs that would be traditional quote unquote bigs in Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, even though Evan is anything but traditional in a wide variety of ways. Um, 
they are the most exciting team to watch on a nightly basis. And I love them so much. Yeah, they're incredibly endearing. It's funny because I was a, uh, I talked about this with a lot of my, like I, I have the great pleasure of most of the people that I know in Cleveland are not giant basketball fans. Uh, it's much mm-hmm. more like Cleveland is so much more a, a football. Um, yeah, Cleveland, football the Browns are like yeah. enormous there. Yeah. It's, and yeah, it's insane. I think it's been funny or more just cool because I've talked to everybody uh, that I grew up with that, you know, still lives around here. And like, this is the most excited people have been about the Cavs since LeBron first came back from, from, from Miami. And I, I paused this on Twitter the other day too. Like this is this, this team and last year's team is the most fun Cavs team that there's been since 2016. Like, I think most of those final teams were kind of uh, the vibes were off. Uh, not super fun. Like, yes, they were winning games, but like, this is different. Like this is homegrown talent. Um, yeah. These are guys, like it's a younger team. Um you don't have the David Blatt situation. Never forget how that first year started off. That was what a ride. Um, it's and the way that they play too is just so fun. Like I think that there were times like, I mean that especially after 2016, that Cavs team never played defense. But yeah. this team, like they have Karis LeVert playing defense, not super well, not super high end. I've had my reservations about him as a player, but I've low key been pretty. Uh, impressed with how much he's bought into his role, but like, like you mentioned with Mobley, like Mobley and Allen just play funky. They play fun. You have Darius throwing Donovan a lob at the end of the game. Like, how often have you seen six one guards throw six one yeah. guards lobs? Like, that's they're just so fun, man. And like you mentioned, I think so much almost gets thrown out with how versatile their lineups can be. Like, yes, they have a lot of bigs, but they have such different bigs. Like Kevin Love turning into like he's always had the shooting of course but like he is just sold out to being like a plus movement shooter for them who can do playmaking hub things um i think in the game against the knicks he had four threes in the fourth quarter was absolutely huge in their run to get back in the game after being down like 15 earlier um dean wade is like it almost feels weird I, like i almost wouldn't call him a big like he's oh we yeah we, we need to talk about dean wade yeah he's let's been... talk about dean wade what would you Terrific. say can, what do you think a kansas state fan would say if you told them dean wade is going to end up uh, a better role player in the nba than michael beasley um <laughs> that's that's a whole other conversation but yeah like no i mean it, it, but it's it's real i mean like think about like Kansas State fans, I think, often got very frustrated with Dean Wade because Dean Wade really struggled with injuries a lot at Kansas State and struggled to stay on the court. If I remember correctly, foot injuries particularly. Um, But Dean Wade has, like, and Dean Wade played, like, the four and the five for Kansas State. He's basically playing the three now. Like, there's not really another way to describe his role. He is the three in lineup constructions, for instance, you know, as we're talking about lineups. This has been the fourth best lineup that's played at least 50 minutes in the NBA this season. Karis LeVert, Donovan Mitchell, Jared Allen, uh, Dean Wade, Evan Mobley. So Evan Mobley and Jared Allen are playing the four and the five, and Dean is just playing the three and he's knocking down shots. His spacing has been absolutely essential for this team to make competent roster constructions around them. I think that there is, look, Lowry has been absolutely incredible and been Mm -hmm. unbelievable in Utah. And I think that he is where he's supposed to be in Utah. I think that there is a case because Dean is a little bit better defensively than Lowry and willing to move the ball a little bit quicker than Lowry. um, That he is a better fit with a Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland backcourt than Lowry Markin and would be. Lowry Markin's a better player than Dean Wade, 
but Dean Wade really just kind of fits what this team is looking for from the three, four position. Um, these lineups have been so good defensively because they can move really well. They have size to kind of gum up the works if they play teams that can't shoot. Um, I thought that what they did last night against the Celtics was really, really interesting because the Celtics are theoretically a team that they should struggle with. Mm -hmm. They should really have a lot of issues trying to deal with them because the Celtics are super switchable. They're able to kind of take away what Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland can do by switching bigs onto them that can theoretically move that should gum up what Cleveland is trying to do offensively. And it just didn't matter because Donovan and Darius are so good and they're willing to move off the ball. They're willing to use um, different actions to kind of get them the ball on the move. It's just really, really impressive uh, what they're, what this team is doing right now. Um, I, I love watching them on a nightly basis. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, man. And I think you, what you hit on is really important because their spacing, um, obviously the shooting has been better this year, but I think you saw a lot of the same principles last year where, yes, the shooting is not great, but you have a lot of guys who know how to make themselves available and how to take advantage of it. Because I think that's the, the most important thing about the Cavs. Like when you play a team against, like like the Celtics, like Mobley and, and Allen are so good at establishing themselves, finding ways to get into the interior. Uh, I mean, Dean is so good at that too. He's a really good cutter. He's a good enough ball handler to move the ball. Um, like, yeah, it's just, they're fun, man. They're so fun. And the biggest thing for me is just Donovan. Like, I think you can look at last night, and I think if somebody like box score watched and saw that, I think they combined for 27, uh, not 27, for 47 shots, Darius and, and, and Donovan, um, and be like, ah, well, I don't know. That's two ball-dominant guards. And, I, A, I think that's a misunderstanding of who they are as players, but yeah. more like yeah. Donovan struggled a little bit early on in the game. Darius was cooking, was so good doing his, you know, he had four for four to start from three, does his pro dribble stuff that is so awesome to watch and works so well with these bigs. But then you got Donovan just absolutely taking over late. And I think you saw, like, I mean, that dynamism to be able to get to the rim at will is something that this team just did not have at all last year. Um, It adds a completely different element that I think they really need in closing moments. And and more importantly, like you saw how important these two players were together. I think the majority of those shots that Darius took and made early on in the game were off Donovan assists. Um, Late in the game, you have Donovan screening for Darius over the last couple of possessions too. Like that's the fun shit. That's what I want to see. Like that's nasty. I've been really impressed with JB Bickerstaff, honestly. Like I think he's good. This is JB. This is a team you really have to lean into being funky with, and they do it. Um, And I I absolutely love it. Yeah, and, you know, we've seen the moments where they can struggle with spacing, even this year, right, where they play Isaac Okoro, and Isaac Okoro is in the middle of, like, just very, very, let's call it a rough slump. Um, We're we're maybe going on a three-year slump with Isaac Okoro, unfortunately, but, like, it this one particularly, it feels like he's really struggled. Like he has not made a three this year, despite the fact that I think he's taken like 12 of them or something yeah. like that. Like he's taken quite a few and teams just straight up don't guard him. And we're going to talk about that when we talk about the Rockets later and how easy it is sometimes for teams to just like stick a center on the non-shooter and then, you know, kind of use that guy to help off of the non-shooter because he's not really a threat and you'll be there anyway if the guy back cuts. So, like, it becomes a real complication offensively for teams that are trying to run a variety of different actions. Um, 
I, I just am so I, – I enjoy this team so much. They have real depth that, like, they can run out so many different lineups depending on who has it on one night, who doesn't have it another night. Like, Kevin Love, you know, had that game last week where he made seven threes. Karis LeVert's a guy that, like, they can go to if he's hot. They can close with him or they don't have to close with them, right? You can close with a Dean Wade. You can close with the two bigs, right? Um, they can go super small if a team wants to play super small. You don't have to play Jared Allen. You can play. Like, if you want to play mobile and athletic defensively, you can play Dean Wade and Evan Mobley at the four and the five and then play the three guards. You're going to struggle to rebound, but maybe sometimes that's the right roster construction in that moment, right? Or lineup construction in that moment. This is a very versatile team. And I don't like like you mentioned Donovan. I'm like out of adjectives for how good he's been this year, and I think that it's important just to note this quote from JB Bickerstaff. I believe he said it in a scrum in September. Um, we didn't have to make any concessions on character over talent with Donovan. Uh, we had that information before the deal was done. And that's 100% right. Like Donovan Mitchell is a guy I've talked about on this podcast a lot as being like a super high character dude. You never really have to worry about um, him stepping in and rocking the boat, right? Uh, he's going to be willing to play with others. He was willing to like occasionally defer to Rudy Gobert in Utah, who is not a great offensive player. Imagine putting him around real offensive talent now. Of course, the guy's going to be willing to move off the ball and like defer. Um, and I don't mean any disrespect to like Boyan Bogdanovich and Mike Conley and those guys, but he proved he was willing to defer and be off the ball next to Mike Conley. And developing those off-ball <clears throat> movements, I think, really, really helped him in terms of my throat's still not 100%, as you guys can tell. Um <clears throat> I think being able to develop those off-ball movements, playing next to Mike Conley, has really, really helped him in the moments where he's played with Darius Garland so far. You, you don't see either of those guys. And Darius Garland, by the way, is a guy that came up as a two-guard with Brad Beal elite. So this isn't a situation like the Hawks, where when DeJounte Murray has the ball, you know, Trey Young kind of stands above the break a little bit and doesn't always do any sort of, like, actions. And we can blame Nate McMillan for that a little bit as well, I think. But, like... These two move constantly. They're trying to get open. You can run like a motion-centric offense that is really, really hard to guard. And I think that this is this team is for real. Like I am not there, – there is nothing I am worried about with this team at this point. Like th- this is a top three team in the East, I think, for sure. Yeah, yeah I think it's uh, – what's been really interesting to watch, like I, I'm not quite ready to say that Boston – uh, Cleveland is going to be the Eastern Conference Finals, but like I think those right now are the two teams that um, I would have as the pretty likely candidates to get there. Like Milwaukee, who we're going to talk about in a minute. I yeah, think right I, at the top. I, I would but have like, Milwaukee there, but yeah. yeah but I, I mean, this yeah. I'm I don't I'm not ready to say this Cleveland team can make a finals run, but they could get to the the Conference Finals and see what happens. Like they've been that exciting, and granted, seven games, but this is this has been a meaningful seven games like it's not been a super easy stretch for them their only loss was to Toronto early uh, I mean in the first game of the season when when Darius went out um and it wasn't fully just because Darius went out to be fair but like also it was gnarly seeing his eye after the game last night oh my I was like oh wow this that we're like because I mean I'd only seen him with sunglasses on for the for the last couple games and then you saw him like oh okay that's for real but um yeah, this team, this team goes, man. Yeah, um, the the Milwaukee Bucks also go extremely uh, fun. The Milwaukee Bucks have the best lineup in the NBA right now. That's played at least fifty minutes together. Uh, 
It is Javon Carter, Grayson Allen, Drew Holiday, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Brooke Lopez. They're basically playing like Grayson Allen and Drew Holiday as like combo. Like one of them is like the hybrid three man. And because Drew Holiday and Javon Carter are crazy people defensively and just pressure the hell out of every single person involved at any point. This team has been maybe the most fun defensive lineup I've seen in a long time. Like just watching Javon Carter and Drew Holiday pressure um, at the point of attack has been such a joy on top of it. They're perfect for this drop scheme that I know you wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. Like Drew and Javon are both so fucking good at getting through screens. Like everyone talks about like Eric Bledsoe and he was so great defensively uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks with in those um, early teams when the Bucks were like a decade ago contenders, right? Not really um, a title team (laughs) yet. Uh these two, this is like the idealized version of that within this yeah. drop scheme with these two. Um, it, it is, they, they are just the most fucking annoying guards I've ever seen in my life. And I fucking love watching it. It's so fun. Yeah. No, I agree. Like, I think, uh, seeing Javon like fully realized, um, he's got to figure the offense out for sure. Still. Like, I think he yeah. can do some things as the ball handling has been good, but like the defense, like this is like full on press Virginia Javon again which I love <laughs> press Virginia was like, that was one of my favorite, yeah. favorite teams I've ever watched. Like, Oh my God, that team was fu- that just so fun. Um, but like you mentioned, like just having two guards who are able to, to pressure the way that they have, obviously not on this podcast, but I just think in general, there tends to be an underselling of how important it is that it is a two man action when defending a ball screen. Like, you have I think bro- I think I saw PD Webb a couple days ago tweet like remember when people tried to say point of attack defense wasn't important it's the worst thing and he's 100 percent right like remember when people were dumb and said that like that's it was ridiculous. like the first two seasons of Utah everybody was like oh well you can win 60 games if you just have Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert and you don't have to have any perimeter defense yeah. like, no no <laughs> no that's not how it works but I mean exactly like the the Bucks have have sold out to um to just be elite at forcing people towards Brooke Lopez. And that's the exciting part of the equation here. Like this is something I want to write about because Brooke has been like, for me, for my money, Brooke Lopez has been the best defensive player in basketball to start the year. Like mm. his rim protection has been on good case for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think like you could definitely bring up others, but to me, I think I would, I would probably peg him as, as the guy. Um, like he's, it's just wild to me because growing up as a kid, I remember watching him and Thad Young on the 2015-16 Nets with like him having like 28-29% usage, being a pretty awful defender. Oh, oh um, yeah. He he was the guy that you would pull away from the basket. Like exactly. He was the guy that you would attack defensively back when he was with Brooklyn. Yeah. And now to like just – obviously, it's been over multiple years that this, this uh, has changed, but – like I think there were a lot of questions last year. Like, it, you know, are they gonna maybe the Bucks should move for Miles Turner or something and look to offload Brooke Lopez and, and try and get younger? And I do think getting younger is still gonna be a question for them. But it's pretty clear right now. Like Brooke has been sensational defensively. He doesn't look hobbled at all like he did coming back after back surgery last year, which I think should have been expected. Um, yeah. And offensively too, like. I mean, it was sick watching the Pistons game. That the first Pistons game, second game wasn't as good, but the first game, like. Detroit loves to switch everything. They play pretty small. Um, 
most of the time, especially with Duran out in that game. And they're like, okay, we're just going to, if you're going to switch, we're just going to put Brooke Lopez in the post, ends up with 24 and nine in that game while playing elite defense. And like, it's just, it, it makes it that much more concrete and easy for, for Giannis to be the best help defender in basketball. Like, okay, cool. Brooke is going to be there in the restricted area uh, inside the paint to muck everything up. But more importantly, because we're so solid and forcing everything to the inside and we're comfortable in how our outside rotations are going to be because of that, there's just kind of a no-fly zone because Giannis is going to come over. There's going to be an X out. They're not really that worried about it. They're able to stay solid. And it's just been awesome to watch. And I, I'm excited to see what this looks like with Chris back. Because to me, the only real weakness has been, you know, when they have to play against some of the bigger wings who can get into the mid-range comfortably. Um, but even then. Yeah, I mean, like, you, you can basically replace Grayson Allen in this lineup with Chris Middleton. Like, or you can replace Jordan Carter with him. Um, but, like, I think a more like for like is weirdly like Chris Middleton for Grayson here. And yeah. you're going to get bigger. You're going to get better defensively. Like, this team is really, really good, and they're not at their ceiling yet. Yeah. That's the scare. That's why when you say, like, you know, I would put the Cavs and the um, Celtics at the top of the East, and I desperately hope we get that playoff series. I, I think the Bucks are the best team right yeah, now in the I'd NBA. Agree with that. Like, uh, they're, and there's room for upside with them still. Like, th- this looks like a 60 win team if they get Chris Middleton back and like everything is clear. Yeah. No, exactly. I think the the only hole for me is like I just think they need one guy off the bench who's going to be a little bit more stable as a shot creator. Same thing that I felt about them last year. Um, like again, that's not we're we're nitpicking. A, arguably the best, not even arguably, they are the best team in the NBA right now. But I do think like I haven't been all that more encouraged by Jordan Wara this year. Um, well, here, here's the other thing too. If if Wara isn't going, if Grayson Allen isn't going, as Derek Palmer in the YouTube comments here points out, they're going to get a flyer on Joe Ingles to see if that works. Like, yeah. there's just so much that they can do. Yeah, and we haven't even seen like I mean, part of it is he's probably not super ready for big minutes, but we haven't even really seen Marjan get that much of a, of a chance in the rotation yet. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they they go with that for some more athleticism. You know, when Chris comes back, but yeah, this. This team is fun. I think the I'm just ready for us to finally shed the well. Bud doesn't make adjustments narrative because it feels like it's still very prevalent. And uh, to completely change up their defense after what they've done the last couple of years and been very damn effective in it, like I've I've been impressed with that. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, let's go to the Phoenix Suns, and th- this is where we're, we're going to do Monty Williams Appreciation Hour because Monty Williams is so good. I, I think yeah. that we don't discuss like Monty Williams gets discussed as a very good coach, but I think that we often do this thing is unfortunately we often do with black coaches where he is the uh, conciliator. He's the great person who keeps these players together. No Monty Williams is a fucking awesome basketball coach. And you watch the things that they run in order to get open and the pressure points that they put on defenses. It is unbelievable how good Monty Williams is it being a basketball coach and to queue up the right things at the right time. Like there was that set that I pointed out on Twitter a couple of days ago where they were playing Minnesota and everyone kind of clowned Carl Towns. Carl was in at the five and they, I think the lineup was like Carl, Torian Prince, uh, Kyle Anderson, Anthony Edwards, Jordan McLaughlin, if I remember correctly. So Gobert was off the court. Towns was at the five. 
teams know at this point that Minnesota likes to play at the level of the screen with Carl Towns. I think that they kind of do that because he tends to get lost in space. If they play him in a drop, he gets hit in no man's land way too often. Mm -hmm. So what Phoenix did to counter that is they essentially empty out the one side of the action. They have Chris Paul bring up the ball on that side of the court. They run a DHO basically where he dribble handoffs to Devin Booker coming around toward the middle. That weak side now is still an empty corner. And then they have Bismack Biombo come up and set another screen. So you bring towns into the action, knowing that Minnesota is going to put two on the ball in this situation. And you're effectively forcing Torian Prince on the backside of the strong side of the action now into an impossible help situation where he has to make a decision on, okay, do I go and tag Bismack Biombo or do I stay in the corner and guard Cam Johnson? And realistically, the way that like you could run this, you could do this a few different ways. Like, you could leave Chris Paul wide open on the backside of the action and have Jordan McLaughlin just like heavy tag down onto the roller. You could have um, Torian Prince go and help and then X out from Kyle Anderson on the wing and then kind of communicate a switch between Torian Prince and Carl Towns where Towns is basically on um, Mikhail Bridges at that point and Torian Prince stays on Bismack Biombo. All of these are fucking hard to pull off in a matter of split seconds where you have to figure out what's going on. Monty Williams is, I think maybe the best coach in the NBA right now, utilizing his personnel to put pressure on specific defenders and making them make an impossible choice. In this case, Torian Prince decides to tag Bismack Biombo at the rim and leaves Cam Johnson wide open. And Carl Towns is like turned around trying to recover onto Cam onto Bismack Biombo. And there's just no, there's no, there's no way to handle it because it's either Cam Johnson wide open for three, Kyle Anderson X is out, and then you shoot it up the wing and Mikael Bridges is wide open for three. Like It doesn't matter what you do in that circumstance. So uh, Monty Williams is incredible as a basketball coach. He is absolutely awesome, awesome, awesome at drawing up things on offense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you said it better than I could, man. I, I think uh, – one of the things I've most enjoyed is Cam Johnson being inserted in the starting lineup. Yeah. I still think obviously there are going to be the questions with, okay, well, can anything come out of the, you know, trading Jay Crowder? Um, but part of the reason why I was excited about this and I wanted this last year, frankly, like Jay Crowder, very good basketball player, but like the difference between him and Cam, like a Cam is just a better shooter, like mainly because yeah. Cam is one of the best shooters in the league already shooting 44% from deep on seven a game right now, <laughs> which is just yeah. like very Cam Johnson. But the biggest thing is like, I mean, I, I think Jay is under under underrated for sure as a passer. Like Jay is a much more than just a three and D guy. Like he's good at moving the ball. He's good at driving in. The problem is he's not a good finisher. And I think the Mavs really exploited that in the playoffs. Like they were very comfortable saying, okay, we're going to run you off the line and we're not going to send help. We're going to make you try and score. And that did not work. Like Jay is pretty below the rim now. He has a little bit of a floater, but it's again, it's it's like a 0.8 point per possession shot if you're if you're lucky. So that was something that the Mavs really exploited. And I think with Cam, you get a little bit different passing because he's one of the things I love about Cam. Like, oh, he's only like about two assists per game this season. So not that much difference from from Crowder. But like, he's really 
unique with some of the angles he crafts. Like he loves doing like jump passes and um, just has more height and is really good at, at, at moving the ball. But he's way better as a finisher on the interior. Like I trust him a lot more, even if it's just on a on a pull up on the interior. Like he's going to score better, and I think you defenses have to worry about him a lot more. And I also just don't think you lose that much defensively. Like Jay has taken a little bit of a step back the last couple of years as he's gotten older defensively. But mainly, like Cam Cam is not the same kind of like lockdown perimeter guy. But he's kind of uh, in that same mold to me. Not obviously with not quite the same level of hands, but in like the kind of catch defender that I would consider like Denny Avdia, like being somebody who's not going to be super physical at the point yeah. of attack, but is really good at like riding guys out, taking them to the rim into help um, and just being there, having their wingspan up. That's something he's well, it's, it's different. I think yeah. more so than like, it's like, I think that there's a real case. He might be better than Jay Crowder defensively at this point. Yeah. Um, if only because Jay's feet have kind of slowed down a little bit as he's aged. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think you could see that a little bit last year, but he, you know, Jay obviously brings the toughness and brings the ability to guard um, stronger guys in a way that now Phoenix is basically going to have to use DeAndre Ayton more minutes on those guys mm-hmm. um, or use Mikhail Bridges on those guys. And that means you can't use Mikhail on a more perimeter oriented guy. Um, you're probably putting a little bit more pressure in terms of matchups on Chris Paul long-term, which is something you don't really want to do if you're Phoenix at this point. Um yeah, no, it, it's a really, really interesting situation that Cam Johnson finds himself in because this is a guy that's entering uh, a contract year or he's in a contract year right now. Um, Phoenix, I, I Phoenix should have done everything they could to get him under contract. I'm sure that Cam was holding out for an awful lot because this is Cam Johnson's one chance to get paid. That, yeah. That's what I keep saying because Cam Johnson is 27 years old. He's signing for his prime years. The next deal he signs, he's going to be an over 30 guy. So this is his chance, and he's taking full advantage of his chance. If Cam Johnson got 20 – if Cam Johnson got more than Mikael Bridges on the open market, would that surprise you? Well, Just question. knowing with the way that the cap is, is rising, knowing the situation that they're going to be in, it wouldn't stun me if he did, right? Yeah, that probably wouldn't surprise me, especially too, like not that – I wouldn't say that he's at a more valuable position, but I do think like the, the, the league, at least where it's at right now is always looking for fours who can do multiple things. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I think that's definitely possible. Like I, I could see that happening. Definitely. I, I don't think he's anywhere near as good as Mikhail Bridges. Yeah, don't get yeah, me wrong. For sure. yeah. But like, I, I think that there's a real chance that someone like Detroit or something is just like, let's keep surrounding Cade with as many shooters as possible and give this guy a bunch of money. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, it's a really, really fun group. For what it's worth, this team also, you know, has made Bismack Biombo incredibly effective. That same lineup that I mentioned that is plus 28, the Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Cam Johnson, Mikael Bridges, DeAndre Ayton lineup, plus 28 per 100 possessions. You replace Bismack Biombo, um, or you replace DeAndre Ayton with Bismack Biombo. They're still plus 16. Yeah, like they're still really, really good. Um, so th- it's 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 worse, but it's really, really fun. Uh, I have two that. things on that. Number one, yeah. uh, most unhinged thing I think I did last year. Uh, Biz had his first like really good short roll passing game with them. I think he had seven assists. Uh, I think it was against the Pacers. I can't remember. Pacers defense was at that point last year, so it was probably them. Um, I put 
the highlights of him passing, uh, I put death grips over it. it was, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the song. I've seen footage, but like, yeah, so I just did that. It, it blew up. I actually had people from the Suns reach out to me, which was hilarious. But um, oh my God. Yeah. But then Jock Landell, man, like seeing. Yeah, we should talk about Jock. Shout St. Mary's Landell. great Jock Landell getting uh, getting getting run an opportunity makes me happy. Like, obviously, he was he was pretty solid for the Spurs last year, but like bigger market getting getting more shine on, a, on, a, on an even better team. Um, and it hasn't just been like gimmicks. Like he's been very good for them. Like he, uh, ideally again, like more of a third big, but he brings a lot in terms of just being a, a good handoff hub for them. Uh, somebody who can, you know, operate from the elbows a little bit. Yeah. He's a decent roller, like obviously pretty below the rim, but he has good craft. He's really strong and he'll move his feet defensively. He's not a great defender, but I think in the scheme that they run, he works pretty well for it. Just being big in the way and in the right places. So, um, I've really enjoyed his minutes. Yeah, no, shout out Geelong Grammar School over here, about an hour and a half west of Melbourne. Gotta love it. Let's he gives go, Jock Londale. Top five quote. Oh my dude, his quotes are amazing. He oh yeah. Some all, of the best the Australians. They're the yeah. best. Australians are the best, I'm telling you. Like you get to know like some of the guys over here that like, you know, I've done a show with Chris Anstey before. Chris mm-hmm. is like the the bigs over here. They're hilarious. They're all great. Um, you know, maybe not Andrew Bogut, but yeah. that's another conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Andrew is certainly very opinionated, at least. We'll go with that. Yeah. Um, but you know, all, they're all just so willing to talk and like be great quotes and like have a great time, it seems like, with life. Uh, Jock Londale is certainly no, uh, certainly no exception in that regard. Um, where do we want to go now? Do you want to go to the Warriors? Because the Warriors are just like the most interesting conversation of this to me. Because the Warriors, yeah, the Warriors starting lineup right now of um, Steph, Clay, Dre, Wiggins, and Looney. They are plus 27 per 100 possessions. (laughs) This team is three and five right now. (laughs) Wonder what the problem is, Mark. Yeah. uh, Could it be the all bench lineups? Um, <laughs> not even just the all bench lineups. There's a lot to dive into here. I think I was going back and watching some stuff today. Obviously, I've seen them a lot in passing. But I wanted to rewatch some things. Like, I think the biggest difference for me is just role player processing speed right now. Like, I think you see so much of like this team. Like, obviously, a lot gets made out of how good they are with their shooting and spacing. But a lot of what their spacing was made out of last year and in years prior, is how quickly they move the ball. Like, teams just – I think you saw that, especially in the Denver series. Like, Denver just could not react fast enough to how well how well oiled that team was. With, like, even if you have – okay, GP2 is not really a shooter. He's not a guy that you're going to worry about shooting the ball, but he moves the ball incredibly fast. He's a good screener. Like, he handles, and he makes decisions like that. Otto Porter Jr., exact same thing. Like, God-tier shooter. Uh, Georgetown's finest uh, – don't want to think about the FGCU game, but like he moves the ball so fast, really good rebounder too. And I think you see them missing that now in part, like Dante DiVincenzo has been out. I do think that that helps with the benches, but like you see Wiseman has to hold the ball. Um, like Jordan Poole has been very good with the ball in his hands, but like, again, it's just their bench overall. I think like even Moody is still kind of finding his way. The turnovers have been a big problem. Like they've all just really been off page. Um there's a lot to dive into with that bench, but I mean, a big part too has been like clay has just been pretty rough to start the year. I think his defense has been a step back and obviously he's missing kind of everything offensively right now. Um, 
Yeah, like I'm, and I'm not worried about the shot. Like that'll come. Yeah, around. yeah. I, for sure. I do. I do wonder if you know we're sitting here at midseason and he still looks a bit slow. You know what? What do we think then? Yeah. Um, I, I I will be a little bit more worried. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Steph has been awesome. Wiggins has been very good. Uh, I think Dre has been really good again. Yep. Like he's been killer defensively for them. Um, I think Looney's been really good as well for what it's worth. Like yeah. Looney just continues to do his job. He continues to take that, you know, you know, th- those minutes that he gets and run with them at the end of the day, even as they're trying to like pray beyond belief that James Wiseman can take his job. It seems like um, the, the problem for them, I think is obviously the bench minutes are a disaster, but Wiseman is like a pretty real hindrance for yeah. them on the court right now. And I, and I get why they're giving him minutes. I think that eventually the hope is that the experience he's going to get over this time is going to help them in the long term, be able to play um, in a little bit of a different way, be able to adjust because you can see stylistically, they're just so drastically different when he's on the court, right? Um, Instead of running their ball movement, motion, heavy offense, they essentially become like a traditional screen setting, you know, high ball screen, rim roller, try and get a pull up, try and get, you know, a team into rotation off of a uh, cross court kick out, just things like that, right? They become a lot more traditional. They lose their warrior's-ness, that's a way to phrase it, I guess. Um, and then on top of it, defensively, he just is kind of lost a lot of the time. Like he blocks some shots here and there, but like he, he gets the same thing with Carl Towns. Like he gets stuck in that no man's land just way too often defensively at this point. And of course he does. He's played, Mark, how many minutes do we think James Wiseman has played like, in the last four years? It feels like, right? 300 minutes on court maybe yeah. like like pro- probably probably i would say 700 if you made me bet um so he's played he's played 950 nba minutes um in now three seasons plus the minutes he played at memphis which i think were like 50 or something yeah. like that so he's played like a thousand minutes in four seasons at this point basically or three and a half seasons right um and this is going to be a process for him at the end of the day, like he needs active on court reps to find out what he is that that's period point blank. What we need having said that he is a real hindrance to them. And at some point the dam is going to break and that they're going to need to make a decision. If he doesn't continue to show improvement, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I don't think there's any reason to panic with the Warriors because their starting lineup is still absolutely incredible as this shows. And then on top of it, like Jonathan Kaminga has not been very good. I'm glad that you brought up the processing speed. Like Jonathan Kaminga is like the prime example of this to me, right? Like he does not have that same, he has the same athleticism and energy that Gary Payton the second has, but like does not have the same processing, quick movement, get the ball off real quick. And plus when they play these bench units, again, they play a lot more traditional with high ball screen stuff and his lack of shooting becomes even more prevalent in terms of mm-hmm. an issue. So, and then like they're playing Ty Jerome minutes cause Dante was out like that. They, they really only have like Jordan pool off the bench. That's actually like an impactful player. Like Jamichael green is a rotation player in the NBA, but like 
they, yeah, they really only have been falling for him, so it's been tough too. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. they don't have a lot right now. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think especially with Wiseman, like it the the communication I think is the biggest issue right now. Like there are like there was a really good uh, clip from from the Heat game where to be fair, like Moody, it's kind of erased on a screen, but like a that's the kind of stuff we're like, okay, I don't think Moody necessarily saw the screen coming. Um, like Wiseman's just kind of stuck there uh, about eight feet from the rim and doesn't really move a ton. Like I, I, I mean, again, like I think that's the hardest part because um, I would say, at least for me, like bigs defensively, especially more traditional drop stuff. Like we just don't like Jalen Duren is very much an outlier in how good he is already as, as a, as a drop yeah. defender. Like most guys, like even Miles Turner became like a borderline all all defense defensive player of the year candidate, but he took probably four or five years to really learn the ins and outs of being a good drop defender in the NBA. Yeah. And it could, I mean, not saying that Wiseman is going to get to that level, but like it takes time to get there. And I just, I'm, I'm with you. Like I don't think, I don't know that I see it happening this year. I would like it to, and even on the on the actual screen and roll stuff, like he's still had, he, it's been better but he's still having some issues with finishing around the rim, just losing the ball. Um, The missed dunks continue to be a little bit of a problem. Um, And he's gone from like one of the five worst screeners in the NBA to being, you know, like a merely below average screener still, which is still like a below average skill. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, even though there's been improvement there. So it's hard. It's, it's hard, but here, here's the thing he needs to do it this year because again, I've said this previously, the warriors, they have to find somewhere in like the 12 to $15 million range to get off of their books for next year. And everyone's looking at Draymond green. Everyone's like, Oh, this Draymond green deal. Like that's the one that you can get rid of. That's the one that you cut. You know how much James Wiseman makes next year, Mark? Uh, Like what? 10 million probably around there. James Wiseman's salary for the 2023-2024 season is $12.1 million. (laughs) So that's this is the cleanest way to do this is just move James Wiseman for a draft pick because assuredly someone would be more than willing to take a flyer on James Wiseman as essentially like a free agency acquisition that costs, you know, whatever it would cost, depending on Mm -hmm. how he plays the rest of the year. The cleanest way to keep this core together, continue to build for youth with guys like Moses Moody, Jonathan Kaminga, Patrick Baldwin, Ryan Rollins, etc., is just to move Wiseman's money. And I know that the Warriors front office loves him. I know that like he's their guy that they picked and they're committed to him and they have every reason to because they have no real reason to not be at this point these are future problems for the warriors not right now problems so they should absolutely be committed to james wiseman right now the cleanest way to do this is just to get rid of the salary at the end of the day um and that's that's why they have to find out what they have with james wiseman right now period yeah yeah exactly i think that's what's so difficult in this and i think too like one of the things that i had big questions about early in the year was how does Wiseman coming back impact Jonathan Kaminga? And I think it's been quite negatively to start the year. And I, again, I don't mean that as a, as a slight of James. That's just how the roster goes. Like we've seen him even get benched a couple of times, just straight up DMPs. 
Um, yeah. And he's playing instead of playing more of the four or five that we saw him last year, where he was really showing some good flashes. Like he's been getting some more on ball reps, which maybe that's part of what the Warriors want. I would say probably not, but um, you know, just by virtue of what the roster has been, he's had to play a little bit more out of position and it has not looked great. Um, so yeah, I think I, I I'm right there with you. There should be people who are interested in James Wise and Roundley. There, there definitely are like, He's an intriguing and good prospect still, but I agree. Like it, it happening in, in Golden State feels pretty tough right now. Okay, let, let's go to the Wizards. We've promised now the Wizards for a while. And what a fascinating team. Like the reason that we're talking about the Wizards is that the Monte Morris, Bradley Beal, Kyle Kuzma, Denny Avdia, Christophs Porzingis lineup is plus 22 per 100 possessions. This is very much a shooting luck number because they have a 64 true shooting percentage, a 61 effective field goal percentage. And according to Daryl Blackport's play by play stats website, they're shooting 49% from three when they're on the court. Good. <laughs> this group is hitting almost half of their three pointers. That's not going to hold, but I do think that this lineup has been really fun. I think the War- wizards this year have been really, really fun. Mark. I will give you the floor. Please tell me about the Washington Wizards um, that are much more fun than I thought they would be coming into the year. <laughs> it's so funny because this team was uh, – I love this team. Like the first month last year, well, they were they were the top team in the East for like two or three weeks, glorious two or three weeks. Um, I still have some of the same feelings about this team. Like they, I have a lot of questions offensively about kind of figuring some stuff out because they're so wonky, but – like yeah. the defense to me has been better than I think the numbers project. They like, yeah, I, think, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Like right now, cause while well, they're on the benefit of some shooting luck, I think opponents are shooting almost 41% from three against them uh, to start the year, which is like, that is a, uh, not typically a number you're in. Yeah. Right now off of, off of BWR, it was 40.4%, which is 27th in the league. Um, I don't expect that to hold up, yeah. but like their roster just in general, I have a, uh, yeah, and for for what it's worth, this lineup particularly, they're shooting forty point five percent against. Yeah, um, like even like just talking about the lineup in general, I think uh, a I've I mean Brad is one of my favorite players to watch in the in the league. I love watching Brad Beal. He's such a good off screen player, uh, just a good off ball player in general. Um, I continue to be really impressed with Kyle Kuzma, like somebody who I think that the strides made last year were pretty real. Like, obviously I think you can point and be like, well, is he really like the third best player on a, on a title team? No, but like, he's the third best player on a pretty good team that I th- like, I think this team is legitimately like could be slightly above 500 at the end of the year. If things really play out. Right. Um, I've actually enjoyed Christoph Porzingis quite a lot, which is not something I expected coming into this year. Uh, yeah. Like I really like the way that, um, that West Soul Jr. has has built this offense. I think you can look at this, and I had some some questions last year, and I think it, it still pertains to the bench a little bit because of how many non pull up threats they have. Um, but they do a really good job of uh, utilizing actions that involve both KP and and Beal, which of course you want to get your two uh, two best players getting involved in actions together, while also getting the most out of having guys who maybe aren't great spacing threats handling the ball so that they're guarded a little bit more to start sets, which I've really enjoyed that as well. Um, and then the defense is just fun. Like, I think the defense is solid. Like they do a lot of switching, but they're also not like just soft switching everything. I do think like yeah. 
uh, watching yesterday against the Sixers, they put KP on Matisse Thybul. I was confused that Thybul even played. I know Embiid was out, but that was just ugly. Um, but they did a really good job just meeting over, mucking up the paint. Um, they have a lot of continuity with I, – I still love Daniel Gafford. Like, he has some – some very real hindrances to him becoming a higher level player, but like he's a he's, very, he's a useful big for yeah, sure. Very useful. Like on a twenty minute basis, he's useful for sure. Yeah, exactly. I think like that's that's just the biggest qualms right now. Like I think you have a lot of guys who are very useful on this team. Finding out how to make them all work together is going to be a process throughout the year. Um, but they've been I'm good. Tackling inside right now that your dog is just yeah. Like my, I, I'm be so sorry about that. He is going absolutely <laughs> crazy right now. I wasn't sure if you guys could hear that. Uh, but yeah, man. I mean, I'll turn it over to you. I have, I have more thoughts for sure. But so yeah, the Wizards are in an interesting place because I really also love their bench units as well. Like they're using like Delon Wright's missed some time here recently, but like you know. You have this Delon, Will Barton, Dan Gafford trio that you can go to off the bench that is really kind of useful. And like Rui has been somewhat viable. I mean, he's still not shooting and he's just an athlete a lot of the time out there, but he's so athletic and has that intersection of like power and quickness that you make it work. Right. Um, he just is good at finishing around the basket. Um, you know, Will Barton can run the offense. You can you utilize like Will Barton and DeLon Wright really well with a lot of the starters is the big thing as well. Like they have a lot of different lineup flexibility with Will Barton and DeLon Wright to be able to put in for a Monte Morris, to be able to put in for a Denny if you want more offensive playmaking out there. Um, both Will and DeLon are big enough to be able to do that if you need more playmaking out there. And DeLon's obviously a really good defender at the point of attack as well if you need a little bit of a rest. Um for some of your guys. So I, I, you know, you can play DeLon with Brad Beal and Kyle and Denny and play super well defensively. I think that that lineup really works defensively. So like, yeah, there, there's just a lot that they can do that. I really, really, um, that I appreciate at a high level. Um, and uh, they're, they're not as, they're not as bad as I thought they were going to be coming into the year. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I think, uh, this is very much a team that I still think needs a consolidation trade, which Easier said yeah. than done, um, yeah. but like especially I, with their pieces, because a lot of their pieces are not young guys; they're like solid vets. Yeah, and those guys tend to be harder to consolidate. Exactly, and I think what's interesting too, like with like on one hand, I'm really excited for Corey Kispert to come back because I think he adds a lot to this team. I, he comes back on on Friday, if I remember correctly, um, which is good to see because I'll be his first game of the season. Uh, I mean, he's like the only true movement shooter on this team outside Brad. And I think they really have lacked that in some of their sets and ability to just play more flow game. Um, so I'm excited about that and just him coming back. But then on the other hand, it's like, okay, well, we're only seeing Rui. Uh, saying only is one. Like, yeah, tw- Rui's playing 24 minutes per game, which is like, that's that's fine. Denny's playing 19 minutes per game. And I think, to be honest, it's been kind of warranted to us to a degree. Like his offense has been pretty rough to start the year. Um but then again, it's more like, okay, well, we have 13 guys on the roster just about who are all capable of playing rotation minutes. It's already funky enough to make it work at this point. And I think what ends up being an issue like we saw last year, I mean, to be fair, like it's it's different because I know just based on reporting, like Spencer Dinwiddie and Montrose Harrell did not see eye to eye, and that was a big part of why things kind of exploded after the first month and a half of the season. But when you have – 
so many guys who are all fighting for roster spot, not even just roster spots, but like rotation minutes, next contracts. Like it's really hard to make that work and continue making it work. So I'm interested in seeing how they try and, and tow that line and what that ends up looking like as the season goes on. Because for me, it's like, what is this next step for the team? Like, I do think that they're in a really interesting point where they do have some interesting points in the roster. I think like, not that I think that they're a huge free agent destination, but like, if you can be at least competitive, because that seems to be what Ted Leonsis really wants in Washington, um, being a playoff team, like that can open other avenues and pathways for you. But again, a lot's how they handle the next couple months can be really interesting to me. It's time, Mark. The Rockets. No, we're, we're doing one team before the Rockets. Oh, yes. It's time for my dear sweet Oklahoma City Thunder. Ah, I love this yes. Thing. I have... I, I put this in here, but the funniest number so far that I've seen this season, the best three-man lineup in the NBA that's played at least 60 minutes together so far this year. It's Shea Gilgis-Alexander, it's Lou Dort, and it's Trey Mann, baby. That trio has a 124 offensive rating with an 87 defensive rating. It's a plus 36.3. Better than anything on the Cavs, better than anything on the Bucks. <laughs> It's team rolling, baby. Sneaky the contender? No, yeah. no, I'm just kidding. Sneaky uh, contender. Yeah. But uh, here's the thing. Dude. This team is like top five in defensive rating right now, which I think just part of that I think is a little bit of shooting luck. But also I think part of it is that Mark Dagnall does a really good job of getting this team to play like competent, always in the right spots rotationally, always in the right spots in general across the court. Like when, when I watch them, I watch a team that I feel very – confident and comfortable just knows what the fuck they're doing out there right yeah and i think not this is not meant to throw shots but i do think that's a nice little uh especially when we're talking about the rocks next like that is a nice inflection point in talking about rebuilding teams and where they're at um this i think a lot of people point this and be like oh maybe the defense is fake like no this was very real last year like i think they were stop they had a uh, they had the best defense in basketball for i think the first month and a half last year um, until they started doing some of their shenanigans, you know, later on in the year, I wrote about this. Like they're just so good at being solid. Like their health principles are really good. They communicate and they play really hard. Like I, I understand some of the tropes and misgivings that people have about OKC, um, but I think it doesn't really apply to how they actually play on court. Like this team plays their asses off, and I think it's part of what makes me almost like even more frustrated that we don't get to see Chet this year. Like. They're doing all of this without mm. really playing true fives. Like JRE is being tasked with playing the five a lot. And I think JRE is a good and, and fun player, but playing the five against some of the guys he has to is, is asking a lot. But like you just look up and down, like they have a lot of plus defenders. Like Lou Dort, I think sometimes gets a little bit overrated as a defender. I don't agree with Luca that he's a top three defender in basketball, but I'm not Luka Doncic, so you don't have to agree with me. Um, Shea has actually played defense again this year, which has been very yeah. nice to see because that's been absent since the um, even before the playoff year, for being honest. I think since LA, that's been kind of gone. Um, Aaron Wiggins, dude, I, I could talk about Aaron Wiggins all day. I love Aaron Wiggins. Aaron Wiggins is a good defender, really good cutter. The shot has to be there for sure, but he's just a fun player. You, you po- Alexi Pokoshevsky is all over the place, to be fair, but like he does some good stuff as the low man that's like like every every couple plays you see him make some some stuff happen there. Darius Baisley's actually turned into a really solid defender for them. Um the offense Mark, is Mark, you, you can't just you can't just buzz right by 
You can't you can't just you can't just buzz right by Poku I, I and act like we're not gonna stop. We it's can, Poku we corner can. time, baby. It is Poku Let's go. corner. Time. Poku corner. Poku corner on the podcast. Uh Alexei Pokashevsky has played basically two straight, like for the first time in his career, he's basically played two straight games where he has not had like a colossally bad five minute stretch. Uh, in them where he just completely tanks everything they're doing. Uh, I've never seen someone that plays with more like just confidence. Like he is most of the time when we talk about this, like the confidence player, right? Um, it's the guard who just like jacks up shots, right? Uh, who's just like convinced everything that he's doing all the time is the right move. Poku is the epitome of that is like a big now he's, he's the modern unlimited confidence player and everything he does. It just looks like he has the most, he has no conscience out there in the best possible way. And now that things have slowed down seemingly 10% for him, you're starting to see more games where he is just like actually good out there. Yeah. I'm not saying that uh, he is some impact player. I would still say he's a below average player in the NBA, but he's actually an NBA. He's player. not the worst NBA player anymore. So, you know, <laughs> the, considering where he started, like, yeah, it's, it really has been pretty fun to watch, man. Like, but like, like he's, but this is, this was the entire thing with him. You were going to have to be very, very patient because he did not play high level EuroLeague basketball. He played for the Olympiacos B team coming in. Uh, he was so skinny, but the way that his brain processed basketball was always very high. And we're starting to see as he slows down for him a little bit. There are still moments where you go, oh, no, he just took a shit and set it on flat fire on the floor. Um, there are still those times where you're going to have to clean up the mess, but they're fewer and farther between now. And I am thrilled that Alexei Pokashevsky and our religion here, Pokuism, has become <laughs> uh, a real, uh, a real enjoyable factor to watch across the NBA. Yeah, he's he's liable to make some wild passes, and I appreciate a wild passer uh, at all, all all times. Never been a more confident person at doing the craziest things on the court uh, because everything that he does looks crazy. He's seven foot tall, and he throws like behind the back passes and throws like overhead like forty foot passes from behind the like half court line. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I love him so much. Yeah, he's he's an endearing endearing player to watch. Um, yeah, this whole team, man. And Jay, I mean, Jalen Williams just came back. Uh, I haven't been particularly enthralled by Ushman Jang minutes, but I, I wasn't expecting him to be an impact player in year one. Um, I do think he's done some positive things defensively. Offense just kind of a ways yeah. away from me. But um, yeah, this team is fun, man. Like, I just am very ready to see what they look like in a year or two. Because I do think that, like, having this defensive base, it's, it feels very real to me. Like, it's not just a... Like this is a team that has an identity. I do. I still don't love how they play offense sometimes, uh, most yeah. of the time, I should say. But um, like you mentioned with Mark Dagnall, like he's really built something that I think is important there in having a real foundation and basis as a defense first team that I think could really surprise some people um, when they do take the next step as an organization. 
The other guy I want to note real quick is Jalen Williams, uh, Santa Clara, Jalen Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, his first game back was against Dallas. He played like 25 minutes or whatever. He was really impactful and effective. Like he used his length super well in passing lanes. Uh, he attacked the basket. He's still not really shooting the ball, but I think that'll come. He's a 40% three point shooter at Santa Clara. You mentioned that Usman Jang minutes haven't been awesome. I actually think Jalen Williams minutes in the three games he's played have been pretty good. Uh, and I'm excited now that he's back from, he got hit in like the face against yeah. Minnesota in the opener. Mass Williams. Um, Love a player yeah. with master goggles. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm thrilled. I am absolutely thrilled to watch Jalen Williams here moving forward too. Cause I, I think he is the one where it, he's going to be more ready to play the newsman is at this point Definitely. and getting more minutes into him um, with guys like Shea, with guys like Giddy, with guys like um, Trey Mann and Lou Dort. Uh, that's going to be really fun. And they can put together some of those really fun four guard lineups. Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay. Last team now. We're moving out of our idea here of great lineups. We wanted to talk about those six teams at the top. Mark hit me yesterday and said he wanted to talk about the Houston Rockets. And this is the team I've probably enjoyed. It it sucks. Like, I've watched a good amount of Rockets games now because I'm just curious on some level. But I think I've enjoyed watching them the least because they're just – they don't really have a way to beat anybody right now i'll let you talk before i go into my thing because i know that this was this was the team you wanted to talk about more than anything and i don't want to steal that from you um so please give me your thoughts on the houston rockets who are currently uh looking at their record one and eight yeah um and it's an earned one and eight too uh i think part of this is me being lazy and not wanting to write it yet because i'm going to write some other rockets uh they are I think what's so frustrating is like I really am so intrigued and excited about most of the players on this roster. But the problem is a I mean like I one of the things that I wanted to hit on first like I feel like there's been a lot of uh frustration amongst fans and just people in general about Jabari Smith Jr and um I think it's misplaced. So I've I've missed that. Can I, and I saw it a little bit today. Can you explain that to me a little bit? That, um, a lot just of by like me think. not being on Twitter a lot. Oh, um, for the best, can you not a good that? day to be on Twitter. Well, yeah, yeah. To be to be fair, like he's shooting thirty percent from the field right now, but also like, um, so there's just been a lot of like, well, oh, you know, this guy was mocked as like the number one prospect. This that like, how is he not? How is he not? Uh, being this guy who's taking us to the next stage, and I'm, I think that uh, to say that it's a misunderstanding of Jabari is maybe a little bit harsh. I don't mean it to to be un, unfair to fans, but like. This was not a guy who was coming in to be ball dominant and take your franchise to the quote unquote next step just in year one. Like I think that he brought a lot of things that was you could see his plug and play, like being a movement shooter and being like a very, very good movement shooter, being somebody who you could you could get some some reps as a pull up shooter, trying to find some ways to experiment with him, getting more on ball reps um, and being a good plug and play defender like. I thought he was the best perimeter defender in the draft, at least in the top end of the lottery, especially what he brings you know, lengthwise, size. Um, but the utilization has just been a problem for me. Like he is being, I think part of the biggest struggle from, yes, he's missing shots from the field, but it's the way that he's being used. That has been most problematic for me. And that's before we even dive into the rest of the rest of the roster. Like he's mostly just being tasked with spotting up. Um, yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned him being a terrific movement shooter. They just haven't used can, it. 
Do you know how many time how many shots he's taken off of screens so far per synergy? It's got to be less than ten. Three. Yep. No, I'm sorry. He's taken two and then uh, turned it over once uh, on a attempt off of a screen. Yeah. So three possessions off of screens. Yeah, and that sounds yeah that almost sounds like too many. Uh, you know, it's just. So that has been really frustrating for me to watch just from like, not obviously I'm not like a fan of the team, but just in terms of like being a fan of Jabari and wanting to see players succeed. I don't think he's been put in his position to succeed right now. Like, again, like, yes, you have to make your shots and you have to shoot better than 30% from the field, but he's not getting his shots in ways that I think you were really hoping to see from him this year and see him get coached to. Um, I mean, having, having him be put within an offense. And I think that extends out past just Jabari um, to be fair, uh, and I mean this like completely seriously, like this team has really missed Bruno Fernando since the first two games, like having a center who is a lob threat, who is a good screener, who can roll. Like, I think you've seen a pretty drastic dip in Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green's decision-making since losing him. Um, and that has woefully hurt the offense because neither, like, yes, neither of them are true point guards. They can bring some skills as as pick and roll guys who can who can create plays. Well, that, that. That's really all Kevin is good at is yeah. a pick and roll player, as a passer at least. He can yeah the scoring out of pick and then, yeah yeah. Uh, but like, else. well yeah, but like the thing he's good at is a pick and roll passer is hitting the roll man. If you have Shengun on the court, Shengun's like trying to pop into like the mid post area more often than not, kind of short rolling. It's just not really what Kevin does, um, yeah. you know, and he's not like a great cross corner guy. He's not really a great like kick out passer often. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it's it, it's been frustrating for sure. Watching. Yeah, that. no, exactly. And I think, you know, you look at that and it's like, OK, um, again, like Jalen needs to shoot better. Um, he's only at 38 percent of the year. But again, I think part of why guys are struggling is because they're I mean, this offense is a mess, man. Like this offense has no direction. Again, part of that well, is this- let me let me talk about that yeah. because I, I think that this is this is the part that's worth noting. Yeah. Um, I don't really think they have any way to beat pick and roll coverages right now. Yeah. Um, they don't really have any effective method to attack, uh, and that's a problem. So, if you have like a Kevin Porter Jr. Shengun combo. Both of those guys, like teams want them to pull up, right? They're comfortable with a pull-up shot or they're comfortable with a Shangun pick and pop, right? Neither of them are good enough shooters. Those are plus EV shots for defenses. Um, Shangun's not a good enough roller toward the rim to be like impactful to where you really have to keep honest on him. Um, that allows you to just kind of be able to put more pressure on Porter and let uh, kind of close off passing lanes, frustrate him a little bit, Um make it harder for him to see things. Uh, if you try and put Jabari at the five, which I think is what would be a really interesting way to get him open shots, potentially. Mm-hmm. The problem is that they don't really have lineup constructions right now that they can put out there that will effectively be able to utilize that because most of their lineup constructions with Jabari at the five, if it's not Jay Sean Tater, KJ Martin, but where you play Jabari is the big one of KJ Martin or Jay Sean Tate is out there. And both of those guys are players that you can hide the center on at the end of the day. And you can let the center just sag off of them and fall back into the paint and just be an extra big man there. And then when you run the Jabari Jalen or Jabari Kevin Porter situation um, in ball screens, 
they can just switch that action. It's too easy to switch that action, right? Yep. Um, Jalen's great uh, in terms of first step, but like he's still developing his pick and roll craft. So they don't really have a way to beat ball screen coverages right now. Um, it's way too easy to just clog the paint every single time that KJ Martin, Jay Sean Tater out there every time. And, and like, I know that Rockets fans are excited about Shingun uh, just in terms of productivity, but like, I haven't seen a lot from Shengun that says to me that like, I think he works hard. And like, I also think he gets frustrated that he doesn't get the ball a good amount of the time. Like he calls for post touches, which only goes to like clog up the pass or the driving lanes for Jalen green and Kevin Porter more than what you would like to see for those guys whose game is built off of driving it's just not a roster right now. And this is something that I've talked about at ad nauseum. It feels like um, it's not a roster that makes sense in my opinion. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of really good players that I really like. I really like Jabari Smith. I really like Jalen Green's upside. I really like the idea of Shangun as like a short role playmaking big that he utilizes sometimes. Um, I like the theory of Tari Eason, by the way, Tari Eason, another guy that teams can just kind of put a center on right now and let him shoot from distance. Teams are going to be happy with that. Um, I like Usman Garuba to an extent. I, I like all of these guys on this roster. It's just too hard to make a scheme that works, I guess yep. is the way to put it for me. Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. And I think, um... and, and look like, I'm sorry before, like I know Steven Silas gets a lot of shit. Um, He's not helping. Yeah. Like, let, let's say that. Like, uh, I, I wouldn't really have a problem with the Rockets moving on from Steven Silas. I just don't know that it's going to get better if you bring in a different coach either. Yeah. Um, it, it, like, if they want to move on from Silas, like, I, I'm with that. Like, I, he's not he's not making things better here. Yeah, I think that's where, where I'm at, too. I got into – this ain't got into – this sounds like – bad connotation but more like i talked about this with some some rocks fans the other day because they they brought that same point up with me and they were like you know well you know what has he had to work with and i'm like i totally agree but i think my issue is just more so okay you have to find something defensively like it's not even like they're i mean they are so listless and bad on defense right now uh the communication is awful um i think i mean not even i think like the saying it sounds rich to say the vibes are terrible but like you even just watching games back, like the amount of finger pointing, the amount of frustration with guys not getting the ball because they're open. Um, just the amount of like, Oh, well you missed the rotation. There's so much bickering back and forth like that. It seems like a small thing, but I do think at, at some point, like this does come back on coaching. Like a lot of it is the roster and the players. This is, it goes hand in hand. It's not just a, a one thing or the other. And that's part of like why I struggle at times with team builds, like the, the Rockets, like when you're, goal is let's get a lot of talent on one hand i get it but the other point okay what is you know how does this fit what is what is the actual like i think you can picture what it is eventually but this is a team to me like that very much needs vets and complimentary vets like i like eric gordon but i think he's one of the worst complimentary vets you could have on this team like he's very much so an outlet scorer like i don't think that he's a great pick and roll passer or secondary playmaker um like you need guys who okay like one of the things I liked that the Spurs went out and got like getting somebody like Doug McDermott like just having somebody who is a capable off movement shooter who can who can pass yeah. the ball who is going to not demand touches like 
when you have guys who need to grow on the ball, you need guys who are able to help them develop that. That's part of the reason I've talked about with the Spurs. Like, I don't think that the Spurs should just lightly give up Jakob Pertl because he's been huge in aiding the development yeah. of their on-ball guys yeah. the last couple of years. Like, we've seen that with Keldon Johnson this year in his league. Part of the reason he's gotten to be a better pick-and-roll passer, and by better I mean going from never passing in pick-and-roll to like actually making passes and reads this year is because he plays with the arguably the best screener in the NBA. Um, the Rockets just don't have guys like that to set them up right now. And I think on one hand, again, like that is a really tough situation to put a coach into um, just given what the roster has been, but also just the results. Like I feel like he's pretty cleanly tuned out by the team. It feels like in some ways. Well, like, so I'm, I'm trying to find like the right, the right, like team for Eric Gordon. Um, I don't know who it is uh, that like bring and by the right team for Eric Gordon. I think there are a lot of teams. Eric Gordon could help. Eric Gordon could go help New Orleans. He could help the Cavs. He could help Phoenix. He could help the Lakers. He could help, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? Like there are a lot of teams out there that really make sense, but like, who is he actually like, who, what can the Rockets get back that makes sense for them as a vet? Like does Devonte Graham help them? Like if you do a new Orleans deal, Nah, because because he's like because I feel like they very much so need more of like a um, obviously you're not getting Darius Garland, but like that kind of guy. Like I feel like they need somebody who's more of like I can get into the paint and and be creative and get guys open with with my ability to to manipulate guys. Devontae Graham is like his playmaking is pretty strictly out of his pull up shooting. I feel like if yeah. and that that's very similar to, to KPJ, and I feel like they need more of a change up guard. Um, which is part of why I really wish they'd just been able to play John Wall last year and figure that out. Obviously not that cut and dry, but you know, um, yeah, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just like trying to find like on right. Can we, can we get the lawn right to the Houston Rockets? I, no, I'm cause he's yeah. better than he's he's right now. helpful for the wizards and he's hurt, but like, yeah. um, it, it, it's hard to find the guy, I guess it, it, like is what I'm kind of getting at. Like, it's hard for me to find the player where it's like, okay, if we're moving out of that, let's bring back a vet and maybe get like a draft pick back. Um, like this Patrick Beverly. Oh God, you couldn't put, I don't think Patrick Beverly like would want to be there. Yeah. Um, like I think that he would probably ask for a release. Um, so then like he, and that just wants, that comes from him wanting to play for a contender. It feels like um, a lot of guys want to play for contenders. Now, a lot of guys don't want to go through the issues of rebuilding and it's yeah like just thinking across the league like it's hard for me to find the guy that you know if you're if you're toronto like would you do something like a thad young i was about to bring that up and my thing would be i wonder if Thad really wants to because he was the guy yeah. who was brought in to help young teams for a large stretch of his career and like i i, I don't know it's a good question i want him to win i want him to get a chance to win 100 percent. so i don't know it's hard it's, it's a it's a hard it's a hard situation in Houston. Um, I don't love I, I as I've said throughout the year. I don't love the roster fit. I love most of the players on the team. I really yeah. want them to succeed. I don't know what to do with them. Yep, <laughs> that's where it's at. Um, Mark, we need to get into one other thing before we go. So you, you told me that you watched Barbarian. You texted yes. me and you were like, have you seen this movie yet? This is like a week ago. And I was like, 
no, I think we're going to watch it tonight. Give me, give me a night. And I think it was like the day after we podcasted. Yeah. And oh my goodness, what a bizarre <laughs> movie. You, I think I you liked it. it a little bit more than oh, I did. Oh, dude, I loved it so much. It was so. I'm going to say for people who have not seen Barbarian, there's almost no way to talk about it without, without spoiling something. Yeah. It's a movie worth watching. It's a movie worth seeing. Go see it. I would recommend it, even though I liked it a little bit less than Mark. It's a fascinating wild ride. Um, but we have to talk about it on the show and we are going to spoil it. So if you want to see Barbarian and you want to like be spoiled or not be spoiled going in, and I would absolutely recommend not being spoiled for this movie, this long preamble of 30 seconds has been for you to turn off the podcast. Yes. Please. Yeah, <laughs> so this, is, can, this is like the kind yeah. of movie where you... I could not imagine coming in knowing anything about this. Like it would ruin it for me completely. Yeah. So turn off the podcast. You've had enough time now while I've filibustered in order to get you to talk about this. Okay. Yeah. Um, Barbarian. Uh, it, it starts as like this, you know, like almost like anxiety ridden, like home movie. And it just, the, the thing that this movie does better than anything, I think, is it uses your preconceived notions of actors yes. against expectation in a real way. Um, Bill Skarsgård being the so clown from man. It, yeah. he's amazing in this movie. And he's not, he's just playing the straight man. There's, you're expecting the whole time he's this fucking creep. And he's just, that doesn't happen, right? Like, it is so interesting. And then they use Justin Long the same way. The guy from Accepted that is like the dork that is lovable and things like that is a fucking scumbag in this movie. It's so, so smart in the way that they utilize um, utilize the actors that they had at their disposal. Yeah, dude, I loved it so much, um, especially in that way, like you're mentioning, like the entire I think what made it so enjoyable for me is like you're saying, like the entire first like half hour, you just like, it's like, uh, it's like watching playoff baseball, except you think somebody's going to die. Like you're just like sitting there tense the entire time. (laughs) Like, like, (laughs) I'm just like, the home, you know, hitting a home run is like akin to somebody finally getting killed in the horror movie. Like you're just like waiting on the edge of your seat. Like, no, don't, 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 don't. And you just keep expecting something's going to happen. It doesn't. Like when when he goes downstairs and you know like that he's gone farther downstairs and you keep telling yourself like don't you, you like I, I'm like at this point I'm just like screaming at you like don't fucking go downstairs like don't follow yeah. this guy and like it, it's like exactly like you mentioned like it feels like this is some preconceived thing like oh well he's luring her into some place to kill her or something and no dude he crawls down so so he crawls down and i'm still thinking like yeah i mean this is him just like playing a trick on her like he's he's insane and then out of nowhere feral woman <laughs> smashes his head bill skarsgård gone from the movie um well like this this is the thing that frustrated me uh, this is something that laura and i get really frustrated because laura and i watch every single horror movie that gets released because they're Laura's favorite movie. I've learned to love them. Um, 
we watch all of them that get released. And the thing that frustrates us more than anything within horror movies is bad decision-making and like nonsensical decision-making from characters, Mm -hmm. right? That is just rife in this movie. Um, I can't understand in what world this woman would walk down these stairs. Like, you just go and you call the cops. And I get that, like, part of what they're playing with here is this idea that um, they're they're set in downtown Detroit or, like, just off of downtown Detroit. And it's clear that the cops don't do anything to police this area because it's a really shitty area. And this woman has... Um, I don't know if we should keep talking about this because uh, apparently Kyrie just got suspended by the Nets. I did just see that, yeah. <laughs> um, and we're starting to get more people coming in here, which probably asking for our takes on Kyrie and we're just talking about Barbarian. Yeah. Um, but the thing that frustrates me is just that this, there's not a circumstance where any of these people make decisions that make sense to me. Like Justin Long the, the whole bit about him getting the square footage is funny to a that point. That was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, wait, what's happening here? Why are we doing this? Um, the thing with uh, the, like the woman, there never is a point. I feel like where this woman would ever go down these steps, would ever go back into the thing, would ever do any of this. You know what I mean? This is a woman who is like scared. And, and like part of this too is like, this is a woman who is almost assuredly been involved in situations that have, had her feel uneasy and not want to put herself in those situations. Right. So it's hard for me to just go, Oh yeah, this woman's just going to keep going back for more. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a, that's an interesting point too. And I, cause it was I, like, maybe I, I might've misread it at the beginning, but it seemed like part of the reason she was going there, obviously she had the job thing, but my dog, I'm so sorry. Uh, but um, like, it seemed like she was like coming out of like an abusive relationship or something like that at the beginning, which I think was part of what they were trying to play on with it. Um, One second moose enough. Um, And that I, so I think in in some ways it almost made it seem, and and I agree that they almost leaned into it too much. It was like trying to pinpoint that she was still trying to really find the good in people, you know? Um, But I agree. Like, dude, I'm not going down those goddamn stairs. Like, yeah, no way in hell. That part was nuts. Uh, no, and and no, no. Off of that too. Like, why does he go down in the first place? Like, if I see the murder room, that's enough for me to yeah. come back up and be like, okay, you're right. We, there's something wrong here. Why do you go all the way downstairs like that? That part, I agree. That part was whack. Yeah. Um. I, I think that where we should leave it is, and just briefly mention the Kyrie thing real quick. Yeah. Um, the, the Brooklyn Nets. I, I loved Barbarian. Um, go go watch it. It's fun. And like we talked about, the least like interesting weird parts of this movie. It gets way more fucking bizarre. Um, and there's like 90 different things going on. But the Brooklyn Nets have suspended Kyrie Irving for at least five games. Um, over the last several days, we have made repeated attempts to work with Kyrie to help him understand the harm and danger of his words and actions, which began with him publicizing a film containing deeply disturbing anti-Semitic hate. 
We believe that taking the path of education in this challenging situation would be the right one and thought we had made progress with our joint commitment to eradicating hate and intolerance. We were dismayed today when given an opportunity in a media session that Kyrie refused to unequivocally say he has no anti-Semitic beliefs, nor acknowledge specific hateful material in the film. This was not the first time he had the opportunity, but failed to clarify. Such a failure to disavow anti-Semitism when given a clear opportunity to do so is deeply disturbing and is against the values of our organization and constitutes conduct detrimental to the team. According, accordingly, we are of the view that he is currently unfit to be associated with the Brooklyn Nets. We have decided that Kyrie will serve a suspension without pay until he satisfies a series of objective remedial measures that address the harmful impact of his conduct and the suspension period served is no less than five games. Um, seems like the right move, right? Yeah, um, I, I think right move, but kind of way too late for me, if we're being honest. Yeah. Like, I think that this is... You know, they've drawn this out a little bit too much for my liking. But, yeah, I agree that it's it's definitely the right move right now. Yeah, um, it's the right move. It's the right move for the organization, period. It's the right move across the board in order to hopefully make him understand that this is fucked up. Like, what are we doing here? Um, you You need to get a handle on understanding that what you did in – promoting or sharing this film that has incredibly problematic beliefs is bad. And he's now had multiple chances to disavow it and he hasn't. Um, But more than that, it's just a real, it's a real, um, he shouldn't be associated with the NBA right now. And this is, that's what this is. He should not be associated with the NBA at this point. And this is the NBA doing a good job uh, or at least the Brooklyn Nets of understanding that this person given the multiple chances he's had at this point should not be, should not be a part of the NBA at this point. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I still am kind of, I guess I shouldn't say surprised given how the silver administration has typically handled things, but um, I, Jesus Christ. Um, I am pretty, uh, underwhelmed by how the the league itself is is handled this yeah i agree it should have should not have taken this long is what we will say um okay that's been the game theory podcast coming up after this is an interview with caleb love uh where caleb and i are going to dive into tape as usual, I would suggest you watch the YouTube of this or go to theathletic.com and watch and listen to this um, and read it because you'll be able to see the clips that Caleb and I are talking about as we go through this. There is still quite a bit of fun stuff uh, within there, such as Caleb's thoughts on going from Roy Williams to Hubert Davis, why Caleb came back to North Carolina, um, thoughts on his freshman season. He really opened up about how much of a struggle that was for him. And just like some fun shit. Like I shared a quote with Mark uh, earlier. It was fantastic. And he's just the best. Like Caleb is such a good uh, dude to talk to. So I would absolutely suggest sticking around and listening to it. But I, I would also more than that suggest going to the YouTube channel and watching Caleb at Love and I break all of this down. That's Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vecini over on YouTube. Um, 
yeah, we'll be back with Mark next week at some point. Hopefully, I mean, it seems like the Kyrie situation won't be over, but, um, you know, we will see. Mark, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Well, I do not plan on being suspended by the Brooklyn Nets the next week. So you can find me on Twitter at MG yeah. underscore Schindler. Um, yeah, that's the best place to find me if you enjoy my work. Uh, I have a Patreon, um, so go over there, check it out. And, uh, yeah, most importantly, thanks to Sam, as always, for having me on and uh, giving me the platform. Yep. Um, okay. Let's, uh, let's get to that interview with Caleb Love. All right. We're here now with Caleb Love, a six foot three, six foot four, something six, like that. Right, Caleb? Six four on a good day. Six four on a good day. I like that. Oh. Uh, here with Caleb Love. 6'4 guard from North Carolina. Uh, I got asked a question earlier this week on The Athletic. Who is the most entertaining player in college basketball? And this was my pick, Caleb Love. I love to watch him play. He's one of my favorite guys across the country. Caleb, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So you're coming off of a monster NCAA tournament. You're coming off of, along with the rest of your team, leading North Carolina to a national title game birth. Your career at this point has just been so fascinating for a number of different reasons. I mean, you come out of St. Louis, you have your pick of schools as a five-star, and right as you're going to college, the pandemic hits, right? And I can only imagine what it was like trying to adjust to college at that point. What, what was what was that process like for you trying to adjust to, you know, playing around another group of loaded five stars like North Carolina had your freshman year, but also trying to adjust to having a lot of new pieces that first season that you were at North Carolina and trying to make the chemistry work while having, you know, somewhat limited practice time and just, just a weird, a, a weird situation to be with then. Yeah, it was tough, uh, for sure. Um, and like you said, uh, you know, limited practice times. Uh, we can't be on the on the court at all at once for a period of time. Uh, my teammates getting COVID here and there, so guys out um, certain practices. So it was tough at first, and uh, you know, but we, you know, we made the best of it, and uh, you know, it was a tough season my freshman year. Uh, not only me, but the team, um, it was kind of yeah. up and down, um, and we couldn't really find our, you know, our niche. And then, um, with, you know, COVID as well, like couldn't really work out as much as, as I wanted to and things like that. But, uh, you know, I tried to make the best of it and, uh, you know, the season didn't go as planned as far as, you know, the team's success and as well as my success. Uh, but you know, um, I'm, you know, I'm here now, so, um, yeah. I- like, you know, I feel like everything happens for a reason. And, you know, I just I probably had to go through that to get to where I am uh, today. And, and that's what I love about your story at this point. And that's why it's one of my favorite across college basketball. Like you were this incredibly highly touted player that, God, I can only imagine what it's like trying to bust through a slump, you know, when you can't even get on the court and like try and shoot through it, yeah. uh, you know, whenever you're not in games. Right. Right. Um, but since then, you've just put your head down and done the work, right? That's what it comes down to. I know that, you know, you've gone and trained with Drew Hanlon, for instance, uh, another St. Louis guy, obviously, uh, over the past couple of summers. And it seems like you've really, really put in the effort 
to get to where you got to last season, particularly, which again, may, may be the best player in the NCAA tournament last year, certainly among them and, you know, set up for a monster junior season. So what is that process of continually trying to improve, you know, going home in the summers, trying to work with Drew and then trying to work with your teammates at North Carolina? How have you gone about just systematically, you know, getting yourself back to that level that you were at in high school because you're back now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I feel like, you know, that's all I know is work. Uh, since, you know, my dad put the ball in my hands, uh, you know, that's all That's all I came up on is, uh, you know, I got to get in the gym. I got to get better and better. And for me, I, I'm big on, you know, um, I always got to get better at something. And if I'm not, you know, great at it, I'm, I'm going to work on it. So, um, that's all I did, really. It's just, you know, got in the gym, worked on what I had to. And, you know, each and each and every year, I want to work on something that I wasn't good at the, the year before. So um, I, that's what I did, as you've seen, like the jump uh, between my, you know, three-point shot uh, went up uh, 10%, I believe. And uh, that's that's basically what it was, um, just work. And um, as far as, you know, my teammates, uh, just getting to know them better. Um, on and off the court, um, and then us just building chemistry along the way. And I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to this season because you know we got two two years under our belt. We've been through um, everything besides you know winning the national championship. We got to we got to that point, but uh, you know I want to be known as a winner, and um, you know that's what we got to do this year. Yeah, and you know, like I said. All NCAA tournament team, all region team, averaged 16 points a game last year, 3.6 assists, uh, shot 36% from three on very high volume from three. Uh, that's what your game is. Your game's all about pull-up shooting, and there's always value in a guy who can get a bucket. Isn't that right? Right, right. <laughs> so let's jump into the tape, right? Like, this is going to be fun. We're going to watch some just wild moments, and I'm sure that – this might be the one that you remember most from last year. Uh, this is the shot against Duke oh, yeah, for where sure. 32 seconds left. You're matched up here against, I believe this is Trevor Keels. And I'm, I'm sorry to Trevor, but this is not the last time Trevor is going to be on this, uh, uh, on this video that we're doing. He's, you're going to get a ball screen from Leaky Black mm-hmm. coming up right around here. Yep. And Mark Williams is obviously just a drop big man. That's who he is. He's terrific at it. One of the best defenders in the country, but he's a drop big man. And that's a problem against you. So what are you reading here as this play kind of rolls along? Yeah. um, You know, I had a great screen by Leakey and uh, knowing that Duke is in drop coverage. uh, I I don't need much space to get it up. So I seen he was in drop coverage and I, I had the little bit of space that I needed and uh, you know, I, I shot it and it went in. Yeah, I mean, is it just kind of automatic at that point for you? Where, like, is that something where in the huddle that Hubert is telling you, you know what, if he drops like we think he's going to drop, if he's not playing at the level of the screen, just pull. Uh, it wasn't even. It wasn't even a you know a huddle because it was. This was off of a rebound. So, um, mm. I and then, you know he told everybody to clear out. And told Leaky he knew Leaky had Mark on him, and he, he, you know, I got the switch, and they switched at that point. And uh, like I said, he dropped, and I, I got the little bit of space that I needed, and it, and it went up. Yeah, and your pull up game is just absolutely 
phenomenal, right? So that, that's where we're going to get to next. So this is one where you're going to create the shot with just the little inside out step, mm-hmm. crossover between the legs, step back, miss this one. Yep. But Armando obviously is always there. And this one is just absolutely filthy. You go behind the legs here, get into the step back that way. How is it that you've gone about improving your ability to just stay on balance from a variety of different moves to kind of load into your shot? Um, just in my workouts. Uh, just, you know, I, I do these same moves in, in my workouts. So, and that's big um, that me and Drew worked on uh, after my freshman year was balance and always staying forward uh, with my posture. And so, uh, like I said, um, you know, it's just, I'm big on, you know, balance and uh I didn't like I said I didn't need no a, no no space really and uh you know I got them off a little bit and and like I said it went up. So th- this is a game where you were obviously particularly hot against UCLA. Yeah. Is when you get this contest here from Jules Bernard like are you even really seeing it? Like is it what is it like when you're on one of those heaters? Yeah, I don't even see the defender, uh, really. Um, <laughs> honestly, I'm I'm just in a mode where I'm just locked in. And even on that first three, I I could have um, took my time and 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 because I had a big on me. So um, with the with bigs, I, I you know take your time, pace, slow to fast um, type of type of movements. And you know I could have got a better shot than what I shot the first one. But uh, we were down three, and I wanted to you know tie the game up and. Coach was telling me to drive it, but I'm like, Coach, I want the three. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I, you made the right call. <laughs> yeah. After I hit it, I told Coach, I got you. <laughs> what has it been like adjusting to going from Roy Williams to Hubert Davis as a coach? Uh, it was an easy adjustment. Um, I feel like, you know, Roy, Coach Williams um, gave me, you know, everything he could as far as, you know, um, being my coach and, um, I, I thank him. I can't thank him enough uh, because um, he put me through a lot uh, my freshman year, and he taught me a lot as well. So um, he he kind of you know created the blueprint, and and me and Coach Davis always had a relationship ever since I got there. He used to work me out, um, and and it was an easy adjustment uh, because he knew exactly what I wanted as far as my personal goals, and um, I knew exactly what he wanted. Uh, for, you know, our, our team goals. So um, it was an easy adjustment. And, you know, I can't thank Coach Davis enough for what he's done for my confidence, um, getting that back to what it, what it was um, since, since I've been in high school. And um, it's been, like I said, it was easy. What do you think the biggest difference is going from Coach Williams to Coach Davis? Uh, I feel like just the, the system. Um, it's kind of the same system, but as far as, you know, Coach Williams did the two big system, the two mm. uh, generic bids where they just, you know, post up and uh, you can't really shoot. But uh, Coach Davis had the four out one in system. And so he yeah. won, you know, a lot of ball screens, a lot of, you know, more like what the league does, uh, NBA actions yeah. and stuff like that. So I, I feel like that's the biggest difference. But as far as the approach, they're the same. So in this one here, this is the one that you made to essentially win the game against UCLA. So there's a minute left, and this game goes on for a little bit longer. But UCLA never topped 66 points in this game. So this is the winner for all yeah. intents and purposes. Yeah, uh, You're coming off here. 
looks like Armando sets a little screen here just to get, it's almost like he's just trying to get Jules behind, yeah. right? Like he wants Jules to be chasing you and having to kind of trail you on this uh, next little action that's going to come through. So Brady Manic comes and sets a little almost like downish screen for uh, you where he's going to be screening essentially two guys, Jules Bernard and his own man, Jaime Jaquez, who's a terrific defender. And this is just a monster screen, first and foremost, from Brady Manic. This is a killer screen. But then you catch, you take this beautiful relocation dribble because Jaime fights through it. And this is just absolute money. This is high arc, high release point. Take me through this play here with yeah. everything that you see. The original, like, this is actually a set for us. And yep. first option in the set is a back screen for Brady. So instead of the back screen, I'm, I'm going to act like I'm setting a back screen. And to get him, mm. he's, he's, Jules Bernard is waiting for me to set the back screen. That's why he's he's behind. So instead of that, Brady sets the screen for me. And, you know, I get the separation that I needed. And then once I seen uh, Jaime Jaquez uh, pop out, I took the one dribble to get separation. And then I, you know, rose up and, and shot made the shot. So – the thing that obviously stands out here is just your intelligence coming off of screens. This is something that is just so, so vital as you're, you know, continuing to play at North Carolina and trying to find open shots as well as, you know, moving up to next levels, right? Your ability to come off of screens for someone who is as lethal as a shooter as you are. Uh, when you see this screen, how are you trying to come off of it? Because you can come off of it a couple of different ways. You could try, kind of roll up toward Baycott a little bit more, or you could try and like flare it out a little bit to try and get away from Hawkes quicker. How are you trying to come off of this screen here? Really, I want to stay right behind Bray like I caught it. Um, the only reason why I took the dribble is because Jaime Hawkes got up out of there um, yep. and and shot out. So um, the reason why, like I said, the reason why Jules Bernard is behind is because he's waiting on me to, he's waiting to help on the back screen. Originally, he'll, if, if not, He'll come with me. So that's why I stopped right behind Brady. And uh, once I seen him pop out, I just needed the one dribble and I, I made the shot. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think I didn't even recognize that this is like a counter off of a set yeah. that you guys had probably run previously in the game, right? Yeah, yeah. because they're they so used to the to the, the actual play. And that was actually drew up. Uh, coach was like, um, don't set the screen and pop out. And it was a great play that coach put together. Yeah, it clearly was. That's an amazing, amazing story. Um, so here we've got just this is just a simple catch and shoot for you from the national title game. So I'll let it play through. But I'm kind of curious at what point you're recognizing here that you're going to be just wide open. So like what what I'm seeing here is that RJ is going to beat Dewan Harris yeah. to the rim. And this should just be a help from David McCormick. But Christian Brown kind of gets a little bit lost here off a of leaky. He should be guarding him in the corner yeah. and it forces an X out from your man. Mm-hmm. And at what point do you recognize here that Christian is like kind of asleep and doesn't really know what to do? When RJ gets to the block, I see that he's lost. So I know that that next pass is coming to me um, after he passes it to leaky. So um, like I said, he's, he doesn't know where RJ's passing it. He just jumped like he had just jumped. So I seen his back turned, and I knew I was going to be open for the shot. 
So just another thing here, just in terms of your balance and your mechanics here, I mean, it's just pristine, right? Like there's nothing out of place here. Everything is perfectly in rhythm. How have you gone about trying to just make everything so systematic in the way that you go about uh, just rising up for that catch and shoot jumper? If only because last year you hit 44.2% of your catch and shoot jumpers. You hit at an exceedingly high rate last year. Yeah, just, you know, just trying to shoot the same way every time. Uh, and my workouts, just, you know, taking that to heat and just trying, like I said, just trying to shoot the same way every time and, and making it a habit. And uh, my freshman year, I kind of like, if I missed a certain shot, I'll try to mess up my mechanics or uh, change my mechanics up. But, you know, just keeping the right base, keeping the right form and shooting the same way every time. So here we go. The next one here is going to be, another catch and shoot, but this one's going to be a little bit different. So you're going to miss this first one here originally Mm -hmm. and another offensive rebound. Obviously you're a killer. You guys are killers off the offensive glass. And Mm -hmm. because of that, you have a lot of experience trying to find open space off of offensive rebounds. And here you just immediately recognize the sprint to the corner and make this shot. How have you, what is it like in these situations off of offensive rebounds where, you know, your team has a pretty good chance to get one because that's just the nature of playing at North Carolina and playing in this system. How are you trying to find that open space coming off of offensive rebounds like this? Um, well, on this one, I see Leaky is falling out of bounds. And what coach teaches us and practices, if a player, if, if one of our teammates is falling out of bounds, come towards the ball. So mm. I'm an a outlet for him to pass the ball because if not, then he wouldn't, he would have probably threw it out of bounds or threw it to the other team. Is it kind of a goal for you in general, just to like kind of sprint to the line and try and find like an open space at this point off of yeah. offensive rebounds? Yeah, for sure. I'm um, just trying to find an opening for him to, to pass the ball and he seen me and he made a great pass and I made it, I made the shot. So these next ones here are going to be, let's start to talk about what happens when you get inside the three-point line, because I feel like everything so far has been outside the three-point line. Your three-point shooting is your best skill. Mm -hmm. But these are going to be finishes. And I know that you know last year you shot 44% at the rim. So definitely an area for improvement for you, right? But I want to kind of jump through some ones here that I think are really positive and like showcase that to me, it's not that you can't finish at the rim. I, I think you're actually like a pretty tremendous finisher when, you know, maybe you make the right decision to go up to try and finish at the rim, right? So here you're going to get the auto switch for St. Peter's. And this is Casey Nadefo for people who don't know, three-time, you know, MAAC Defensive Player of the Year, one of the best defensive players in college basketball. This isn't like really a mismatch here. It is for you, though, kind of, because of this first step, right? So you get them rocked to sleep a little bit, and you blow by them. And this isn't the easiest finish. I love here how you cut his angle. For people who don't know, again, like Casey Nadefo is one of the best shot blockers in college basketball. Mm. And you cut his angle off entirely with that little Euro step, and then obviously you go up for the finish. Kind of take me through this play here as you're rolling through it. Yeah, I see nobody's on the weak side, um, you know, so I kind of, you know, use my crossover um, to make them, you know, kind of fall asleep. And so as I'm crossing over, I go slow to fast, and then I just take off. 
and I see I got him beat and his teammate comes over to help and I get just that little space that I needed to cut his angle off and I euro step and I finished. And that's a really tough finish. That's a tough yeah. angle. That's a tough, that's body contorting. That is, that is difficult, right? Like you have to try and find an angle against a great shot blocker against a rotating defender and you get a clean look. Like that's what I think that's where your troubles are more than anything is when you don't get a clean look. I think you finish pretty well. And here's another one. This is maybe my favorite one here. So you're going to come off of this Brady screen, no switch, but you know, as we saw earlier, Jules didn't really do a great job on you in this game. You, you forced that obviously, but here you just beat him to the rim and it's absolutely terrific. So take me through this play. Yeah. I see he stays with me off the screen. So I'm just using my stop and go moves. Um, and just to get him off rhythm and, uh, you know, I easily get past him. He kind of stays with me on this one and I stop and then I go again. And then he, I cut his angle off by finishing inside. Yeah, I love the inside hand finish. I mean, that's something that uh, like Bones Highland is a really good example of that for the Denver Nuggets. Like he absolutely loves those inside hand finishes. Right. And it's just such an effective way, I think, for you. And the last one wasn't really inside hand, but it was right hand left side of the rim right at the end of the day. I I think that that's a really, really high level skill for you. And I wanted to talk about your handle here as well. You've talked a lot about, you know, going slow to fast, right, or fast to slow, then fast again. I mean, what are you reading here? What are you trying to do with Jules? Because it feels like eventually once he gets that drop step, you're just like, okay, I'm going, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, uh, as a defender, um, when you're defending somebody, if they're going at one pace, it's easy to guard. Um, if they're going super fast, it's, it's easy to guard because you can st- stay up with that. And if they're going super slow the whole time, it's easy to guard. So um, as a defender, when you're – trying to guard somebody that's stopping and then going or slowing down and then going fast is hard to keep up with. So he's just, you know, like I said, it's, it's kind of, I'm kind of toying with him as I'm, you know, going fast to slow and then slow to fast. Yeah. I mean, it's just harder. So when you're going to make your moves here, so you kind of pull off a few different things here. Mm. What are you reading on Jules's body that makes you make a decision on what move that you're going to try and bust out? I'm really reading his, you know, his front, his top foot. Yep. So I'm attacking his top foot every time, uh, you know, I make my move. And so I got, as you can see on this crossover, I attacked his top foot. He switched his foot again, and then I attacked the other foot. Yeah, you and, had him dancing. Yeah. That's that that. pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, okay, so these – this group here is going to be where we get into some of your more questionable finishes. And to me, it's, it's more decision, right? Like here, it seems like you kind of put your head down here and just go for it. Yeah. And you know, at the end, like you have this kick out here to RJ, I think that you're capable of making, you know, this is number 25. Like you can, if you're looking out and your eyes are out, that's pretty easy pass given how elevated you are at that point. Um, you know, theoretically, you could maybe try and hit the drop off here to Baycott, but I think the one that you probably missed here is the corner pass. These are hard reads, obviously. Like this is not this is not the easiest read in the world, but I think that what we're seeing here is just you know head down and you just try and go for it at that point. So what happened? Like, what are you seeing on this play? Yeah, you know, uh, right here, if I keep my dribble, if yep. I keep my dribble. 
I and as you can see, he went to Mondo, number 10, went to Mondo. I could have easily passed it to Brady. Brady was wide open. Yeah, I think that's a really great call as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't even – like your whole back is like turned, right? Yeah. So like I wasn't even like – I don't even know if you can make that pass. But if you yeah. think you can make that pass, I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, if I keep my dribble, I, I have either option, Brady or uh, RJ. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good call about being able to keep your dribble and deciding to keep your dribble because because I did did my job. I I had two people on me, Um, so that's I I created and you know the confusion, and I had two people on. So if I had one more, if I took one more dribble, I, I got those options. I'm so glad you brought up the idea of you did your job, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is one, again, where I mentioned Trevor Keels earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, you you do your job here. Trevor's not a bad defender at all. And mm-hmm. you just immediately blow by him. Yeah. This is the ease. Like, you've done your job here. This is You're putting immediate, difficult pressure on the Duke defense where they are going to have to make some real scramble rotations here. And here you see Jeremy come in from the corner. This is a pretty easy kick out pass here to who that's RJ, right? Yeah. I could Um, drop off right there to puff. That's exactly right. And instead you go up and you challenge Theo John. I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. Theo's a really good shot blocker. Like it's to me, it's, it's not even about your finishing package. Like I think you can finish. It's just, the decisions, right? Yep. Like it's, it's the decision like, on going for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some good ones now because you can really pass. Like, that's the thing. Like, I think you could actually really pass. For sure. This is a great one here where, you know, we kind of mentioned the drop off where you get the help and you can just hit that drop off to um, puff on the last one. This is more of just a pocket pass and a pick and roll to Baycott, but you do a great job here. The concept's the same. You see the big coming to you, and you just hit it immediately. You're patient. Yeah. You wait for that big to hit you, and it's bam. It's right there. Uh-huh. Baycott tears the rim down, right? Yeah. So what are you reading here? Uh, I'm really reading Brady's man, and I'm reading the, the, the big that's guarding Mondo. So if Brady's man helps, I got an easy zip pass to, to Brady across court. And if, you know, he stays, he can't really help off Brady because Brady is going to knock it down. So I know he's not helping off him. So I'm seeing the big stays with me and I hold the dribble for for a dribble or two more. And I hit, hit Mondo on the pocket pass. Yeah, I love this. This is great. I love that you're reading that backside tiger. That's so important. That's that that's the read you got to make, right? And then this next one comes in that same Duke game that we just called out, right? Uh-huh. So you're going to come here. You guys are going to run a little Spain pick and roll action where mm-hmm. Brady's going to pop out to the top. Uh, I believe that is, is that Armando or is that leaky? I can't yeah, that's, tell. My, that's Mondo. Yeah, that's Armando. So here you bring essentially four defenders toward you. I got you five. Have, yeah, I got yeah. five guys looking at me. <laughs> you have your pick, right? And yeah. instead of... You know, you, you make the smart decision here and you find the man. In this case, you find the best shooter, which is even smarter on your end, right? Because you're going right. to hit this trailer pick and pop to Manic. So tell me what you're seeing here. Yeah, I know uh, Brady's setting his back screen on, on Mark and uh, that's just causing more confusion. And uh, Paolo stays with me 
So I, you know, I hit Brady. So I got three guys. I got essentially four guys. I could hit Leaky in the corner as well um, yep. if I had the option. And so uh, I got three guys looking at me, and Brady's wide open. So I easily hit him at the top of the key. Yeah, and look, like AJ has long arms. That's probably yeah. not that's, a pass that you want to risk. Yeah, that's a tougher pass. Yeah, and, you know, obviously you just don't want to throw it into the crowd. Like, this is just a perfect decision from you, right? Like, you can yeah. – you know, I think when you're like under control, like you're a terrific passer. And again, it comes back to just keeping your dribble live, right? Sure. Uh, it goes back to what you said in that previous video that we looked at. It's just keeping your dribble live at the end of the day. Yes. And the other thing that you do, I think pretty well and have potential to do pretty well, even if I think the numbers I'm looking at the numbers now, um, you only hit 27% of these last year is your floater game but you have a good floater. Like, I think that it was more just, you know, you missed a couple maybe that should have gone in. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, This, this is your counter. This is your counter to drop coverages. This is your counter to not having to go amongst the trees inside and try to finish, Mm -hmm. you know, here, you're just going to stop and pop right ahead of Theo John. It's beautiful. So tell me, take me through this. Yeah. Just knowing Duke played drop coverage majority of the game, this game. And so uh, Theo, you know, he's backing up as I'm coming down and it's easy floater for me to, you know, get off. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a terrific screen from Armando yep. Baycott as well. Mm-hmm. What's it like playing with a great screener like Baycott? who's just always going to get you that bit of space. It's great. Cause you know, I, I always tell him that, you know, if you set a great screen, that's going to get you open and it's going to get, it's going to get me open, but it's mainly going to get you open. So, um, so I just tell him, you know, he's always the, the main option and, uh, you know, he says he sets incredible screens for, you know, it makes my job easier. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, look, like that's all I've got in terms of tape. But what are your goals for this season? Let's just kind of end there. I mean, you, you chose to come back to North Carolina for a reason. I mean, it, what are your goals coming into this? National championship. That's that's, that's my, it. Yeah, that's that's my main goal. Um <laughs> Uh, I feel like, you know, as a, as the point guard of, you know, the, this team, I, I feel like uh, you, you as a point guard, you got to be known as a winner. And yep. I didn't want to, you know, leave my, you know, career as losing the national championship. And we were just so close. And I know what team we we had coming back. And um, as far as, you know, coming coming in this season, we, we got our, you know, our mindset on one goal, and that's winning the national championship. So was that really it? Because obviously, you know, like we talked about, mm. you had an absolutely incredible NCAA tournament. And most mm. of the time, guys ride that wave straight into the NBA, right? Mm. That's just kind of the way it works. You, you just kind of you go when you go when the name is hot, right? Sure. But is, is that what your decision was? You know, you felt like you had this team coming back and you wanted to really just kind of lead them to a title? For sure. You know, the, the NBA is going to be there. Um, you know, the NBA is not. Um, you know, they're, they're going to find you if they, if they want you, they're going to find you. So regardless of, you know, age or, um, whatever they want to call it. Cause I, I heard a lot of people saying like, they don't take juniors or, um, you know, uh, you had a great season, you had a great tournament, run, leave, blah, blah, blah. But, um, my timing is my timing. So, um, yeah. as far as, um, you know, what I wanted to come back for is, is, is winning this national championship for North Carolina. Yeah, look, like the NBA is going to find guards. They're going to find shooters. You know, for everyone that says they don't take juniors, that, you know, Keegan Murray was just the third year that got taken number four overall, right? Like 
you know, if you're a perimeter player who can play at this level, they're going to find you and they're not going to like hold it against you at, at the end sure. of the day. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's absolutely the right move. And, you know, I'm excited to watch it. Like I said, you are, you're one of my favorites to watch across college basketball. I'm glad we could do this. Pre- um, yeah. Uh, this has been the game three podcast. Please remember rate, review, subscribe to everything and support the show. We will be back next week with more until next time. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you.